Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Thursday morning, June 9th, 843-661-0937 is our number scheduled to appear in the 8 o'clock hour. Russell Fry, um, the perceived front runner to take the job away from Congressman Tom Rice. Uh, Monday, we'll have Congressman Rice here at kind of an entertaining hour. Yeah, good morning, Rev. How good are morning. you? Yeah, and how good. about our Braves? Hey, it's oh, our Braves. Our again, Braves. How about our Atlanta Braves <laughs> on a seven-game winning streak? Playing terrible baseball teams, but part of having a decent season is beat the bad teams. I was just looking up the final score because I didn't make it to the end last night. 13-2. to two. Yep. So they've got some offense against, like you say, the worst team in baseball. Yeah, the A's suck. Yeah. I mean, they, you know, sometimes you get real optimistic. Like, okay, they turn the corner now. They're playing really, really bad right. teams. But timing's now, good for that. Well, I mean, and, and the timing is this. So the Braves have put themselves in a uh, kind of a deficit. No question about it. They're two games, three games over 500 now, seven game winning streak um the Mets are playing about 650 baseball the Mets are not going to play 650 baseball you know why because nobody hardly ever plays 650 <laughs> baseball I mean it's just hard to win two of every three in a 162 game season but the Mets are beginning to play some real good teams did the Mets win last night against San Diego That's what I was looking up okay let's do that know. real quick and then this some um, sports segment of the show brought to you by bird of a thousand gods <laughs> so did the Mets win Still looking. Uh, it, it's obvious you're not my daughter. I mean, because my daughter would already have it looked up. So the Mets lost. They lost. Mike, thank you, they Mike. Lost, yep. um, Mike is proficient at technology. Rev, ah? this is a new phone. I was okay. trying to figure it's it out. It's a new phone. Uh, Thir- 13 to 2, so they lost. Yeah, well, they're playing a good team. The Padres, Padres. are a good team. Um, the Dodgers are a good team. So if they're making a West Coast swing, here's what I'm saying. Uh, while the Braves are playing the bad teams, the Mets are playing the good teams, you got to make some hay there. I mean, you got to, you're eight games, I'll play seven games out now. You need to get that down to three and a half or four because there will be a, a, an eventual inversion. There'll be a stretch where you play the good teams and the Mets are playing the bad teams. So when your rival is playing the ba- the good teams, you're playing the bad, you got to make up some ground. And um, hopefully that's what the Braves do. What our Braves will do, <laughs> and they, <laughs> they were your Braves a week ago, yeah, seven-game winning streak, they're our Braves. I've noticed that. Uh, once again. Yeah, and I've that noticed. Acuna kid's a good player. I'll tell you, I mean, he's an electric player and seems to be um, playing the humble role. No, I'm kidding there. <laughs> that's, no, that's I'm not kid- true. Yeah, I'm kidding there. Um, I, I think we're to the point now we could argue. I'll, I'll go a little further down this road. Dansby Swanson may be the best shortstop the Braves have ever had. He's I mean, he may good. be the best shortstop the Braves have ever had. The Braves have never had a franchise shortstop. I mean, they've had franchise first baseman, third baseman, outfielders, pitching staff, obviously. Franchise catcher, no. Um, no, they've never had a franchise sort of catcher. Uh, but Dansby Swanson may be the best shortstop the Braves have ever had. Um, I would not argue Yeah, I mean, that. I think yeah. we're to that point. I mean, he's a really, really good defensive player. He's good enough with the bat kind of well-rounded first-round draft choice from where? From Vanderbilt. So he's got some um, some some uh, prestigious pedigree about his uh, his education. And Vandy has a really, really good baseball program, one of the best baseball programs in all of America. Okay, I want to eventually get to what I think the most important issue is, and that is um, guns. We're going to talk guns here in a couple of minutes. But I want to go back to something we discussed yesterday Um I did not take the time that I needed because I got busy on some other things. So um, preliminary uh, apology. I said that I would know what Manafort and Bannon and uh, Navarro and uh, Stone. get me Roger Stone, please. 
<laughs> watch the Netflix documentary. Seriously. I mean, if you want to understand the way that world kind of works, watch the Netflix documentary. Get me Roger Stone, please. Um, but anyway, I said I would know for sure or certain what these guys, what sorts of crimes they were charged with. Um, I didn't have a chance to do that because I got too busy on this um, federal employee gas card. Oh, did you? Well, I mean, gas is you know, if I, national average five dollars a gallon. I think it's four ninety seven this morning, maybe four ninety eight somewhere there. I've not looked yet, but it's it was four ninety five yesterday. I said that today may be the last day uh, in a long time that it's less than five dollars national average. Um, but I started looking down um, how many employees does the federal government have? How many of those are non-postal civilian workers? How many are military? Um, how many state government, uh, state employees, federal employees? I actually found um, a list where it lists the federal government employees in all agencies statewide. Um, in other words, California has this many federal government employees this many state government employees this many um local government employees it's interesting i mean it's incredibly interesting um the percentage of people in america today who work for the government in some way shape or form um now once again when you say military and you say contractors and postal workers and i mean it's it's 9.1 million is the best number I came up with. But once again, Reb, that is all of the armed forces. That's National Guard. That's anybody that receives any sort of compensation from the government. That's private contractors. I mean, there are a um, there are a buttload of private contractors. But but as it relates to just strictly federal government employees, it looks to me the number is in the neighborhood of two million. I mean, I saw an estimate at 1.8 million. I saw it at 2.1 million. But once again, I'm talking about non-postal, non-private contracting, non-military, civilian federal government employees. Um, so it's roughly somewhere between 1.8 and 2.1 million employees. There's 600,000 gas cards. That means one of every three federal government employees has a gas card. That's absurd. <laughs> And only the only reason we're talking about this is a a female senator from Michigan, Debbie Stabenow, um, said that she was driving her electric car, you know, to Washington from Michigan. And what's the big deal? Yeah, you know, what's the big deal you here? Drive right by those. Yeah, gas stations. I drove right by those gas stations, those convenience stores that have the the big gulp. Um, you know, for ninety nine cent. Remember, Bloomberg wanted to outlaw the big gulp. Um, but she said I drove right by these convenience stores one after the other after the other. And nothing to see here. You know, there are a lot of people in the lot. I'm sure they're frustrated. She didn't even say that, but it was just so um, tone deaf. But but there's about 1.8 to 2.1 million federal government employees. We've got about 600,000 um, government-issued gas cards within the federal government. That means roughly one of three, maybe one of three and a half federal government employees have a gas card. Is that unusual? I mean, is there a reason to be concerned about that, uh, the practical reality of that being the case? Mike, somebody on the phone? Nope. Okay. Don't, we're, we're not. Look, <laughs> Mike, uh, you don't care what kind of standing you have with me because I don't sign your paycheck. But if someone starts down that road, immediately hang up the phone <laughs> and just say, hey, uh, the guy that hosts the show said do this. This is not a tail Ken. Mike is not. Um, he's certainly not the suicide hotline. <laughs> 
Nor is he the um. He's not. He's not a message taker. He's not a message taker. He's a producer. He's not a um. He's not a uh, carrying pigeon. No, he, he's not the guy that gives messages. You the call. This is a call-in talk radio show. This is not a therapeutic agency. That's right. This is not somewhere that you get things off your mind. You vent um, your frustrations to the guy that answers the phone and produces the show. Mike has a lot going on. And the last thing he needs to be is on the phone with you. I'm um, talking about tell Ken this or tell Ken that. Will you tell Ken to read this? Will you tell Ken to read that? Wonder if Ken knows this is going to happen. Wonder if Ken knows that is going to happen. Um, get on the air and say it. That's what this show is about. And I am deeply frustrated that some of you just refuse to listen. So, Mike, from now, I don't sign your check, and I know I don't, but but I'm I'm asking as kindly as a Southerner can to someone from Freehold, New Jersey, <laughs> home of the boss, um, well, just hang the phone up immediately. I don't give a damn how long they've been listening, <laughs> how much, how many loyalty points they believe they have. When someone calls they in, they should know by now. They the should know the by now. This is not a, we've got numbers that we give out over the air. Mike's job is to answer the phone very precisely, very quickly, very succinctly and say, who is this and where are you calling from? Hold one second. Click. That's his job. I mean, he's got a lot of things. He's got a big board with buttons and levers, and he's got a computer screen. He's got another computer screen. He's got a lot of things kicking over there to make sure ads are played and features are played. He doesn't have time. We had someone call yesterday that said, um, hey, you got a pen? Take down these 15 <laughs> yeah, well, websites. Know. You know, Ken needs to read these 15 <laughs> websites. Um, yeah, he, no, he doesn't have a pen. And if he does, I'm taking it from him during this next break. Stop with that. Now, now if it feels better for you to say something out loud, uh, that's what the whiner line's for. How about let's make this a, a, an opportunity uh, to encourage you to call the whiner line, 803-720-5260. That's 803-720-5260. And you can leave your thoughts there. And if they're good... They may end up right. on the air. And maybe we change that from the whiner line to the whiner slash tail kin line. Maybe. I mean, maybe we can go down. I'm not offended by it. It just complicates Mike's life to the point he's not able to do the job. And his job is not to be on the phone with someone. Yesterday, it was literally three minutes. And I said, Mike, who, who was that? During the break, I said, who was that? He said, some guy said, hey, uh, you got a pen? Take down these 15 websites. <laughs> I mean, these are places Ken needs to look. I mean, he's, he's, I know he likes to read this stuff because he's got this crazy radio show, and I like listening. But but I got these 15 websites that I'm sure he doesn't know about. Take these down for me, Mike. Um, yeah, okay. Um, Mike stayed on the phone as long with that person yesterday as it takes to sing the entire Rosalita live version. <laughs> and we don't have time for that any longer <laughs> either. So, so anyway, we've got things to tell people, I man. Know. Like one of every three federal government employees has a gas card. I'm leaving you. I'm leaving you, state boys alone. I'm leaving you, local boys alone today. I'll get to that in a bit. But yeah, uh, if the numbers are right and there's somewhere between 1.8 and 2.1 federal government employees, and there's 600,000 gas cars floating around out there in the ether, that there's one of every three government employees working for the federal government that has a an issued gas card, a legally issued gas card. I read story after story after story. Yesterday, uh, the Washington Post had a big expose, 2.4 million gallons of gas they can't account for. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> of course. I mean, they, they, they've got this auditing system, as good as the government can have an auditing system, and they believe they keep tabs. You know, who has the cards? Who's getting the gas? I'll tell you how good a tabs they keep on. You ready? They ordered an electric fleet 
for a federal um, it's in California, and you can imagine. I mean, California would be the most aggressive in pursuit of the green energy. So, in some government agency in California, they order an electric fleet of cars. Six people who have electric cars in California, working for the federal government, had gas cards. They build about uh, $65,000 worth of gas in a three-and-a-half-year period of time when all the cars were electric. So hmm. you tell me what's up with that. Uh, in some of the government auditing, give them credit. I mean, in some of the government auditing and oversight, I think it's Office of the Inspector General is where general accounting is where some of this um, lands. But, yeah, they, they replaced a fleet with an electric fleet but for whatever reason, uh, the previous employees were allowed to keep their gas cards. Oversight, maybe. Uh, could have been. Yeah, it could have been intentional. I don't know. But um, but they still got gas bills to the tune of 60-some-odd thousand dollars over about 30 months, about two and a half years. Um, everybody, everybody's got an electric car. They're still charging gas. I'll let you um, ramble along and see if you can find out what they may or may not have been doing. 843-661-0937. Let's go to our first call of the day. Steve called to go on the air this morning. Hello, Steve. Yeah, I'm not going to have him, you know, write this down. But um, I was uh, looking at the news this morning. Um, New York is banning uh, the sale and ownership of body armor. I think it's level one body armor. I don't understand why you can't protect yourself anymore in this country. Um, what are our politi- or elected politicians doing? Why is Biden allowed to still be president? Before Donald Trump even got in the office, they were trying to impeach that guy. I am frustrated. I couldn't call in yesterday. I didn't have my headset with me. Um, I don't think we're going to make it until the end of the year. We're going to be a war with somebody or war with each other. I guarantee it. This is what it's feeling like. You've got um, Taiwan over there giving their citizens guns. Ukraine gave their citizens guns. But we're not allowed to have ours anymore. And I still want to know what a high-capacity magazine is. I can't shove, you know, more than what it takes into that magazine, so I don't understand the high-capacity part about it. And I'll let you guys go from there. You guys have a good morning. Thank you, Steve. Appreciate that. 843-661-0937. You know, Britt Hume said yesterday, and I respect Britt Hume. He's been around the block. Um, he wasn't staying up late that night, you know, when they, when they, when they stopped counting the votes, Britt Hume, that was probably the most real moment I've seen on live television in a long, long time. When someone said on the, uh, on the round table, the semicircle table is what it is on the Fox news election set, night, 2020. Yeah, election night, 2020, someone, um, someone just all of a sudden said, uh, blurted out out of the blue in Pennsylvania and Georgia, they stopped counted votes and Britt Hume before I mean, it's like, he's in a bar somewhere. Britt Hume said, Hell, do you mean they stopped counting votes? I'm not staying here half the night. I mean, it, it, you know, I've done enough of these dog and pony shows, and I know I'm a um, an influential voice on Fox News. Britt Hume was probably the first. Am I right, Rev? He would have been the first um, journalist of noteworthiness that came over to Fox News when they I, launched I think so. the uh, not the Fox not, not Fox News, but Fox, Fox in News. general. I mean, yeah. Fox in general had to have a news division. Uh, they lured Britt Hume away from ABC, and that's kind of a coup at the time to get Britt Hume to come over, and he's been there ever since. And he's kind of the, um, I don't know, Rev, one of, one of the respected voices of um, of political news and journalism, and Britt Hume, but that night, I mean, the way he looked at his watch, it was like George H.W. in a debate, like, I'm not staying here half the night, man. I mean, you know, <laughs> I, I want, I, you know, I probably want a conservative to win, but I'm not, I'm not that committed to the calls as some of these others are, but he just all of a sudden blurted out, what do you mean they stopped counting votes in, in Georgia and Pennsylvania? And it was not for uh, worrying about the integrity of the election. 
Hey, what time am I getting home? Right. I'm, gonna, I'm not staying here half the night. You young bucks can see this through, but I'm not staying here I'm half the night. Britt Hume said yesterday on one of the shows I was watching, might have been Brett Bear's show, um, they have these superimposed, you know, uh, got, got Britt Hume from here and got somebody else from there. Newt Gingrich down at the bottom and somebody else, you know. But, um, but Hume was there, um, not on set, but he was kind of superimposed on the television. And Hume said um, that we've got to tone down the rhetoric. I mean, he was talking about Kavanaugh and, and, and but, but his, his, his comments, we got to tone down the rhetoric. We, we've got um, we, to de-escalate. We've, we've got a lot of talking about, you know, are we responsible for any of this? Or are we uh, pushing the envelope to the point that it, ah, I don't want to say defends or, or encourages but, but does it legitimize in some way, shape, or form some of these emotions? Uh, we know now that someone had a gun, duct tape, uh, just some other the wire ties, some uh, got dropped off by a taxi at the home of, of Justice Brett Kavanaugh with the intent to kill. I mean, he called 911. Um, probably some sort of mental illness kicking here. But, um, but anyway, Britt Hume was trying to argue that, you know, toning down the rhetoric. Um, asking for de-escalation, um, you know, reaching more amicable, uh, compromising resolutions to some of these problems. I just don't see it. I mean, I, I'm sorry. I just, I just don't, for the life of me, I don't think I'm obligated, nor should I. I'm sorry, guys, and this is controversial, uh, and, and I think a lot about it when I say this, but but I, I think it's time to escalate. I mean, I really believe that. I think the left is trying to bury uh, the political right today, they know they have the wind in their sails. They have a complicit media, complicit academia. They have all of these powerful and organized forces in their favor, and they're trying to, I mean, they're throwing the Hail Mary. And they're, you, you watch what they're doing, guys. They're protesting in front of a justice's house, which is illegal, and their AG, Merrick Garland, chooses to do nothing about it. I mean, he's derelict in his duty. There should be an impeachment effort today on Merrick Garland. There should be an impeachment effort today on Chuck Schumer for what he said. Um, basically encouraging people to go after Justice Kavanaugh. The left is not going to de-escalate. The left is not going to tone down the rhetoric. The left believes that you will not stand up to how committed and passionate they are in some of these, um, I don't know, damaging and dangerous beliefs they have. And and if Brit Hume believes that de-escalation of the political right leads to de-escalation of the political left, the toning down of the rhetoric by the political right is a leads to a taunt, no. But I, I think it's you become a sympathizer. You become um, less of a force against some of these um, some of these committed and, and dangerous forces in America today. D- does the right get everything correct? No, of course they don't. Surely they don't. And there are examples that the, the right has got completely out of bounds. But to believe, as Britt Hume says, that if the right will de-escalate, if the right will tone down the rhetoric, the left in turn will return the favor, no. But that's not going to happen. And, and I understand what Hume's doing. He's trying to be a responsible voice in American journalism and politics. And in that, you know, in that orbit or ethos, I get it. I mean, he wants to be respected. He spent a, a lifetime trying to be a, a credible voice in the world of American politics. I just think he's wrong. I think if the right de-escalates, the left further escalates. If the right further tones down the rhetoric, um, the left turns to switch up. They want you to back down. They believe you'll back down. They don't think you will stand and fight as we need to stand together and fight. Take a break. Back in just a minute.
843-661-0937. Love to know from the private sector business owners listening to the show, what percentage of your employees have a gas card? I mean, that's an oddity. That's something I may be hung up on. Um, but, yeah, I but if you're a business owner, you have the ability to give your sure. employee a card and you pay the expense of that card, obviously, Correct. any charges that are incurred. Now, when it's government's money that's paying these gas cards for the government employees, hmm, where's that money come from, well, first of all? You know, the government's sure. money. But the, wonder how that makes, you know, as a citizen, does that make you well, how feel? How does it make you feel? I mean, let me ask you this, because mm-hmm. you and I talked during the break a second ago. I know we got calls, and we'll get there in two seconds. So you don't dislike government employees. No, of course I mean, you not. have nothing against no. government employees. I don't say, hey, are you a private sector employee or public sector employee? Because if you're a public sector employee, I'm putting you on this list. If you're a private sector employee, I'm putting you on the other list. I mean, I don't, I don't live my life like that. But I said yesterday, and I stand by the comment, we're eventually going to get to a place where private sector employees resent public sector employees because they believe the deal's too sweet. That's where we're headed. For a long, long, long time, the private sector guy believed that the public sector guy, or lady for that matter, didn't make as much as they did, but they kind of made it up on the back. You know, you don't make a lot of money in the public sector, but you got these pensions. You got these retirements and health care and all these other, um, uh, what do we call benefits? I mean, there are certain benefits for being in the public sector. Well, that's just not the case any longer. On average, now once again, there are no multimillionaires that made that much money in the public sector. I mean, that's still innovation, entrepreneurship, um, small business owners. I mean, those are the guys and ladies that make a lot of money. Unless you go to Duke and get a degree in medicine or Harvard and get a degree in law and or you come up with the best widget ever made. I mean, those are the guys that make multi-million dollars or women who make multi-million dollars sell the business for a hundred million and go to the beach if they choose to go to the beach. So I'm not saying when you look at the, the multi-millionaires in the public sector, multi-millionaires in the private sector, there is no comparison. What percentage of people in the private sector make $100,000 a year compared to people in the public sector that make $100,000? It's a serious debate to be had. And then you add the benefits of being a public sector employee. And I said yesterday, you kind of looked at me funny. Um, I know in South Carolina, you contribute 9% of your salary to a retirement account and the government agency of which you work contributes somewhere between 15, 16% up to, I mean, 27, 28, 29%. You kind of look to me like, do what? I mean, really? Yeah, that's the cold, hard truth. Um, Where does that money come from? The bottom line? I mean, the company that makes the best widget has the most excess capital. They get to take the capital, invest in their employees. No, taxpayer dollars are what funds the government. So the government has to charge enough for whatever service they provide to account for that 15% match, that health care for life benefit. Uh, And I think we're getting to a place where a lot of private sector employees are scratching their head going, that doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, we're running deficits all over the federal government. Our taxes, our our property taxes have gone up. Our, our, you know, road tax and this other tax and another tax. I thought they were running a shoestring budget over here, being smart and responsible with their money. But you mean to tell me that a certain percentage of my tax dollars goes to contribute 16, 18, 20, 22% to a public sector employee's retirement fund? That's exactly what I'm telling you. And health care for life, that's exactly what I'm telling you. And, and I think as we reveal, or these revelations are made known, private sector employees are going to say, well, I, I mean, I don't have a pension. I don't have a retirement. Nobody's taking care of my health care for life. Yet someone in the government is confiscating X number of dollars of the money I make to make sure those people have those benefits. What's up with that? 
That that's why I think the resentment is coming at some. It's not going to be personal. I mean, I you know I'm not I'm not saying the guy that works at you know Jiffy Lube is going to not like the guy driving the you know the bulldozer for public works in in Sumter County. But but I think on average there's going to be some degree of resentment one toward the other. It's just that we don't know the facts, and I guess that's a little bit of um of me being kind of a foot in each camp, you know, spending most of my life in the private sector, a little bit of my life in the public sector, and having a an understanding and awareness of uh, how both operate to some degree. Yeah, when you were lieutenant governor, you would have been in that state retirement sure. system. I was right? in the state retirement system, no question about it. I know what they took out of my check, and I know what the state contributed to match uh, that fund. And uh, I just, you know, that's, once again, that's not because the government makes the best widget, has the most profit, and has excess capital to invest in its employees. That's because the government says, we've got to figure out a way to pay for these contributions, to pay for these benefits, and the only way we can do it is to raise taxes. Let's go to the phone. Barry in Chirag. Good morning, Barry. Hey, good morning, guys. Hey, Ken, on the uh, gas cards, uh, it could possibly be uh, ride-share programs uh, in the federal government. So we we got two that comes from Florence to Bennettsville, uh, one from Fayetteville, one from Lumberton, one from Charlotte, Waysboro area. So could be that for gas cards um, throughout the country, which is, you know, you can say right or wrong on that. Mm-hmm. But uh, so they go to a general location, get in a van, pay that van, whoever owns the van, uh, gets a gas card. Uh, it's kind of like a stipend. And uh, they go from there to try to save money. Um, so that could be it. I'm leaning it could not be it. Uh, I'm leaning towards individual gas cards. Barry, what I'm talking about, that there's a set of metrics and measurables that apply to the private sector that just simply do not to the public. And we've right. got to do better there. I'm not I'm not arguing that public sector employees are no good. I'm certainly not. So, I mean, I've got many, many, many friends in my life who work in the public sector and are committed. I mean, they do a damn good job at what it is they do, but but a lot don't. And, and the private sector has, um, whether you like it or not, they have metrics and measures that apply. Uh, if you pay your people too much and don't make a profit, you got a business. You know, if you make commitments um, about benefits and you can't afford, you have to revisit those benefits. And the government just simply does not live in that world, and we must force it to. Oh, I, I agree 100%. I just, you want me to get your blood pressure up? You ready for this one? Uh, so we'll get a budget, you know, we'll get a budget every year, and it's usually late the last 12 years. Well, we'll have 30 days to spend X amount of money, get told to spend X amount of money. I'll just give you a roundabout. 20000 got to spend it. Well, I don't need 20000 Well, you better spend it because you're not going to get the 20 if you don't spend the 20. You're not going to get the 20 next year. Whatever you spend, it's got to be close every year because you won't get it the next year. Say I don't need it this year, Ken. Well, I got to spend the 10000 or I won't get it next year. You see what I'm saying? Sure I do. Yeah, so I tell every congressman this, and nobody brings it up any. They just... They get on the town hall and like, I didn't know that. Okay. But nobody in Congress signed a personal guarantee. Absolutely. And and that's the difference. I mean, it wouldn't be, I said yesterday, I'll say it again, Barry, when it's everybody's money gets anybody's money. When it's anybody's money gets nobody's money. When it's nobody's money gets everybody's money. And it gets treated accordingly. And, and there aren't enough responsible people in government that understand budgeting to take care of that. Thank you, Barry. Appreciate the call. 843-661-0937. Let's go to the phone. Someone else is there. Here's Joe in Hartsville. Good morning, Joe. 
Yeah, good morning, guys. Uh, that's one of the reasons we need to go to zero-based budgeting. I know you understand it, but a lot of people don't. It's where every year your budget goes to zero, and then you justify what you need. You know, I used to raise hell about that back in the 70s with the military. Every year they come down at September, and, and we have $8, 10000000 million we had to spend before October 1st. And I always ask, well, why can't we give it back? And, uh, oh, no, if, if you do that, you won't get as much next year. But anyway, on our general conversation you got going on this morning, the Democrats are the ones that do all the threatening. I mean, they're like a bunch of dogs that chase a car. They chase the car, they chase the car, they, ch- they catch the car. What what are they going to do with it? They they don't look long-term at their policies, just like this gas stuff. You know, they get all their taxes from gas. Well, if everybody goes to an electric car, where are those taxes going to come from? People are so delusional. They don't think they're going to come after the electric car. You're talking about now taxing the mileage that you drive. So they think they get this electric car, everything's great. They're going to find a way to tax that. You're you're never safe from their policy. And I guarantee you most of the charging stations will be around Washington, D.C. You know, it's the same thing with women. Women had to be... Oh, they, you know, don't need a man, don't need this. Now, all of a sudden, men are telling them, well, you have to compete against this man who says he's a woman. So it's all the way, they've gone full circle on their stupidity. And I just wanted to comment on, on your talk last week with Mike Rickenbaugh. Mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you what, he is such a fresh, I wish we had a hundred of him in, in South Carolina politics. I wish we had 435 of him in federal politics because he has the values that represent us. Faith, family, education, hope, love, charity. He's got it all. I mean, he is the complete package. And talking about leadership, now that's a leader when he represents my values and your values. Y'all have a good one. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate that. 843-661-0937. Kind of a, um, a bit of a rambling first hour here this morning. want to remind our listeners that in the 8 o'clock hour, Russell Fry will be with us. Ken Richardson was with us yesterday. Barbara Arthur was with us um, Tuesday, Monday. Congressman Tom Rice will be with us. Um, we've had uh, Spencer Morris with us. We've had every candidate in the studio, I think multiple times, except for Mark McBride, who extended that invitation for whatever reason. I don't know if they declined. They just never responded back to the invitation. But we're trying to give you an up-close and personal look at these candidates. Um, I think it gets a little bit interesting and dicey today and uh, Monday because these are the proverbial front runners. And, um, you know, if you believe in the polling, some don't believe in the polling. Some call the polling uh, fake news. These polls are, are skewed or manipulated, distorted to advantage one candidate over another. Um, and I guess to some degree, you got to believe that. But if, if someone, if a poll shows you at less than 10 percent, somebody else in the 30s, somebody else in the, in the 40s or, or 20s, then, yeah, I mean, to, to, to continue and to be optimistic and to believe you have a puncher's chance to win, you got to call BS on some of the polls. And I would imagine, Rev, there's some spinning 
going on in the polls, but most polls I've seen that I put any faith or stock in have Fry 1, Rice 2. So we're going to have Russell Fry, who most polling says is the leader in this um, ah, Trump-centric race, and you've got Tom Rice coming Monday, and um, I hope they have two compelling and interesting hour-long interviews, and we'll open the lines. You can call in 843-661-0937 and discuss whatever it is with that candidate you choose uh, to discuss both today and Monday. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. Hey, about two weeks ago, somebody told you that they thought Dr. Oz would win by roughly 1,000 votes. The election got certified yesterday. Dr. Oz won by 951 votes. I owe you an apology. I don't like being off by 49 votes. I mean, I, I'm sorry. I just don't. When I say 1,000, I like it to be 1,000. Um, so I owe our listeners, our loyal listeners, so uh, out of about a, mil- a solemn million apology. votes. Yeah. <laughs> millions and millions. And I think I said a couple of weeks ago, by it votes. looks to me like... With some of the de- Democrat outstanding vote and some of the Republicans, some of the areas. Remember, we talked about Philadelphia. There were a lot of outstanding votes in Philadelphia. Probably not many Republican uh, votes. Um, surely not if Mark Zuckerberg's involved in involved in Philadelphia. But I said it looked to me like Oz was going to win by a thousand votes. I get apology. I was off forty nine. It's actually nine fifty one. The vote is certified, and now we have a Democrat nominee, a Trump endorsed Democrat nominee in Pennsylvania named Doctor Oz. How's that for a movie headliner? Trump endorsed Dr. Oz wins. No, former President Trump endorsed Dr. Oz wins Pennsylvania Republican primary by 951 <laughs> votes. Go to Hollywood with that script 10 years Nobody ago. Nobody would have believed it. <laughs> Let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington. Hey, Mike. All right. I, I just want you to know, Ken, your apology is uh, duly accepted. Okay. Thank you, Mike. <laughs> and, Appreciate that. And we, we know you'll do, try to do better next time. <laughs> but... Uh, I tell you, um, I, w- I never did get my question in the other day, and I still want to know who was that guy that a British economist that you uh, had on there talking about his uh, his theory and his explanation of what NAFTA and GAFTA did uh, did not do just to the economy but to the culture. He's not an yeah. economist; he's a businessman. Um, his name is Sir James. A goldsmith? Goldsmith. Sir James Goldsmith. And that was from a, about 25 years ago, was that, Mike, that audio? You, Mike, imagine Carl Icahn and Donald Trump. Uh, imagine a piece, a Reese's yeah. peanut butter cup with Trump and Icahn. <laughs> that, that would be Sir James Goldsmith. I mean, he comes loaded and ready for bear. But, but, and he said some of these things in the 90s, and, and, and everybody said he's just a troublemaker. He's a rabble rouser. He's trying to create political conflict. But he's a bit prophetic as we look back. Well, I I would say absolutely so because it it has uh, uh, just uh, absolutely destroyed um, many many towns across the nation. The heartland's just been decimated because um, good jobs have disappeared, and there's a culture to uh, uh, doing work where you can even if it's hard work and you make good money. There, there's a culture there that grows up around that and a pride in what you do. And, and that, that loss, I don't know how you replace that quickly. But I, uh, this other thing about that, you were talking about the gas cards. Well, in a past life, I don't know, it's been uh, many years ago, but uh, they also had uh, fuel cards. You could fuel up your uh, air transport there at the airport. <laughs> I know that, too. 
and I know that for a fact, and uh, that 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 can run into some serious money real fast. No question. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. Eight four three six six one. 0937. One of the things that Sir Goldsmith said, and once again, he's not an economist. Well, he may be an economist, maybe an educated economist, but he's a businessman. He's an entrepreneur, made a lot of money. Uh, he's been um, knighted. You know, Sir James um, Goldsmith, Jimmy Goldsmith is how they identify him in uh, in England or in Great Britain. But he says, um, and this is what caught my attention. One of the lines of the book, The Trap, he wrote a book, The Trap, and it talked about um, foreign trade deals. And basically the argument he makes is, one of the defects of modern culture is that we are taught to believe every problem can be measured in economic terms. But in societies, or when society's principal tool is measurement and not understanding, great mistakes follow. And he goes on to say that the, um, that the Western economies invited, welcomed, blessed, ordained, um, politicized, legislated about 4 billion people into um, a productive Western economy, and they would do it for nothing. Uh, the, the stat he uses that caught my attention, for every Western employee, let's say America, for every one American worker, we talked about gas cars and retirement and health care and vacation and all these other sorts of things. Um, for every one American and the cost associated and the benefits package, you can employ 47 of these 4 billion people that GATT, NAFTA, TPP invited in to what we'll call the um, the industrialized world. Now, now, economists call it the emerging markets, uh, you know, you know the, the industrialized markets. But um, he had a lot to say back in the 90s about the great mistake we're making and the lack of understanding we have of what economic consequences will ensue once we invite these 4 billion people to work. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843 is our number. Someone's on the phone. We'll get there in just a second. Getting some text here and some, um, I'm getting lit up by some of my government worker and friends Uh-oh. who are talking about, you know, you're getting y'all. No, I'm not getting any of this wrong. In fact, I went back and looked at some of the, uh, the general accounting agency and some of the auditing of government records. And uh, I mean, th- there's several articles out there about the sheer size of the government's workforce. Walmart has about one and a half million employees. Um, the federal government has about two million. Um, you got about 4.1 million contract employees, 1.2 million grant employees. Uh, when the census comes along and they hire some of these temporary workers to administer the census, they're categorized as a government worker. Uh, you got 1.3 million active duty military personnel, and you got about a half million. That's in decline, but about a half million postal service employees um and here's what i'm arguing and this is the only point i'm trying to make um the economy or their economic reasons to be concerned about the sheer size of government um versus the private sector i mean you know you got uh you're taking you're extracting from one to fund the other well i mean pure economy i mean just any economic theory would say you got to be careful about shrinking where you're taking from and bloating what you're giving to. Now, I'm not saying nobody deserves it. Uh, I think that um, that public sector workforce or a public service uh, workforce is essential. I mean, it's a, a we, we need it to sustain ourselves. I don't want to live in a world without a fire department, police department, rescue workers, um, roads and bridges. Uh, I want somebody inspecting the bridges going over the rivers and streams. I mean, so, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that we should abolish the public sector by any stretch 
of the imagination, but we can't continue to allow it to be and operate separately from market forces as if it's completely disconnected from the economy. And the argument I'm making is when you look at um, some of the pensions, some of the retirement, some of the um, some of the healthcare benefit, some of the uh, some of the funding of retirement, it's it's bloated. I'm sorry, it's bloated uh, to the point that um, most surveys have said that government, excuse me, public sector workers receive on average somewhere between 15 and 20 percent higher um, compensation than private sector employees, um, and they work about 12 percent fewer hours. So you've got to give and take. You've got, um, you know, giving right. the, the perception pro- has changed because it was always, you know, you made less money. Well, I still for think government. The, I don't think the perception has changed because I think public sector lobbying unions have done a good job of making sure. But the reality the is not of the reality is completely different than what the perception is. The reality is if you're a young person today graduating from college and you're looking for a job that offers security and pretty good compensation, the government is a much better place to look. Um, now, now, if you want to be a multimillionaire, you want to roll the dice and be an entrepreneur, innovator, you know, don't go into the government. Uh, and I'll, I'll give you a, a classic example. There's some cancer research um, done at Duke or Vanderbilt where someone probably deserves to be making two or three or four million dollars a year. They're probably making, you know, a quarter of a million dollars a year, 300 as a research scientist in one of these laboratories. Now they get other private contractors, but that would be the person that could probably go into the uh, the private sector and make multiple millions of dollars a year. But on average, the point I'm trying to make is, and I guess the, the single point I'm trying to make is we can't allow government employment to operate separate of market forces. You just can't. And, and when you've got a private sector and its GDP is growing at about, what, 1%, 1.5% last 25, 30 years, government's growing at about 45 5%. I mean, it, you know, we know that's going to be problematic at some point in time. And, and the oddity of, okay, Mike, you work for the government. Give me 9% of your pay, and I'll make sure you're taken care of when you retire. In fact, I'll contribute another 16 or 17 or 18 or 20 or 21 or 22%. I mean, there's some retirement plans in the public sector where when you put up 9%, they put up nearly 25%. That means um, better than one of every $3 you make is being matched by, you know, uh, your employer. And nobody can do that. You can't sustain that. That model doesn't work. What do you do to make that model work? You print money or raise taxes, right? I mean, that's the only way to do it. You print, I mean, you don't make widgets. You're in the service industry. I mean, how much better can you inspect bridges? How much better can you um, pave a road? How much better can you be a first responder? You got to raise taxes or you got to print money to to fund all of these wonderful things we're offering public sector employees. And this is nothing personal. And I mean that sincerely. And I've got some public sector employee friends who would agree. I got a pretty sweet deal. I mean, I'm putting up 9% of my salary uh, toward retirement. And my employer, who is the taxpayer, is put it, not just matching it one for one. I mean, in the private sector, a one for one match is a sweet deal. You put up 5% of your pay, I'll match it. That is a sweet deal in the private sector. In the public sector, in South Carolina, I can't speak for other states, you put up 9%, your employer, the state, the federal government, the county government, match 9% with their 16 or 17%. Where does that money come from? I mean, do, do, so, 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 is there some entrepreneurial space? Um, element within the private sector, excuse me, within the, the public sector? Did they make a better widget that led to enormous profits? 
And because of those, in other words, Apple, let's use Apple as an example. Carl Icahn's beef with Apple is it owes the shareholders the money it has on hand, the cash it has on hand. Apple has billions. I mean, if I'm not mistaken, Reb, you can look it up, but it's something like $100 billion right, cash on hand. Icahn says it's a publicly traded company. They owe the investors that money back. That money doesn't. Apple doesn't have a right to hold that money in uh, in safe harbor. You I mean, ready for this? Yeah, two hundred and two point six billion. Okay, Apple has two hundred two point six billion dollars in in profit that they've just got. Um, they've got banked somewhere that you know. And then Icon is arguing that's not your money. That's the shareholder's money. That money should be returned to the shareholder. It's egregious. He argues it's borderline illegal to have $200 billion cash on hand. Now, they would, hey, they would say, yeah, but there are merger and acquisition opportunities. There, there's research to be done. There's R&D work to be done. Um, you know, we, we never know when, the, when we might need a couple of hundred billion dollars cash on hand. Um, but in the, in the public sector, wh- where's that innovation? Where's that entrepreneurship? Uh, the only way you have money is to tax the private sector or print it yourself. And I just think you're going to build, I, I think we're already there to some degree. I think private sector employees are becoming a little bit bitter with public sector employees. And there's some resentment uh, following suit. And uh, I had somebody tell me yesterday, I had no idea. You, you mean to tell me that a government worker contributes 9% of their salary and we, the taxpayer, contribute another 17, 18, 19% so they can retire at 55, 56, 57, 58? Yes. I mean, that's the math. And, and once again, this is not personal by any stretch of the imagination, but government employment must operate in conjunction with market forces. It must be forced to connect itself with economic realities like the private sector. What happened in COVID? How many public sector employees missed a check? How many public sector employees saw a decline in compensation? How many had benefits um, suspended? We know what happened to the private sector over and over and over and over again. How many times did that happen in the public sector? I'll give you another example um, of something that I find interesting. There's about a 4% chance you're going to get fired in the private sector. I mean, that's kind of the random number. 4% of all private sector employees get fired during the course of a year. You know what the number is in the public sector? Two-tenths of 1%. Nobody loses their job. I guess they do a wonderful job of, of vetting who it is they hire to run this organization or be a part of that organization. So yeah, you've got about a 4% chance in the private sector of getting fired. You've got two tenths of 1% chance in the public sector. We've got to force the public sector to adhere to economic realities. Let's go to the phone. Here's Breeze. Morning. Hey, Ken. Um, so when you get about half the country working for the government, whether it be local, state, or federal, pretty hard to um, criticize your employer, isn't it? You kind of got to go along to get along, right? The number today is about 20%, Breeze. About 21% of all workers in America have a job uh, where you're paid to some degree by the government. There you have it. So that's a pretty good constituency. Anyway, I am convinced that the January 6th protesters were heroes. They were American heroes and patriots. I think they were infiltrated by communist government uh, saboteurs. I'm certain of that. But here's my question. Uh, on the state level here, can the state legislation, you know, the governor and the, and the legislature call in 
F, the, the, whoever the head of the FBI is in the state of South Carolina and asked them how many of these patriots did they arrest at charge of a federal crime and then say, well, how many people did you arrest and investigate that were actually domestic terrorists that were burning down the cities like Charleston and Columbia and rioting and beating people up in the streets here old dog in Charleston? How many of those people did y'all arrest? And they call in the state prosecutors, the county prosecutors, and ask them why the charges were, were, were put forth against them. Why doesn't the state of South Carolina, that's supposed to be a red state, why don't we start acting like it and start, start holding some of these people accountable? Why isn't the state legislatures and all that calling for press conferences all the time and asking and demanding the federal government do something about the, this inflation by, by producing more oil and things? Why are we not raising hell? And this seems like we're just sitting by and letting it all happen. They got the communist Democrat propaganda machine that's going on tonight, and it's going to daggone put on this dog and pony show straight out of daggone, uh, you know, right straight out of daggone uh, Chairman Mao's China or the communist uh, Pravda in, in Russia, and these fools are going to sit there and believe it. You know, why are we not, why are our guys not calling press conferences, getting on the local media, local radio, and daggone, and calling hearings? Call up hearings. Find out why we can't daggle do something about our gas prices here. And I got another question for you, kid. I've seen it up there, up in these communist-controlled cities. They're passing their own gun legislation. Now, down here in South Carolina, can they pass their own gun legislation? But the next question is, what can a state like South Carolina or Texas or whatever do to block any federal legislation that it that it that um the daggone um, impinges on your um, Second Amendment right. I know that's a lot, but I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. 843-661-0937. What the, what the federal government's trying to do in gun laws is um, uh, red flag and uh, boost funding for mental health. They're, they're adding money to it. I mean, in other words, if your state agrees to follow some of the federal guidelines, there'll be grants uh, made available. If you don't, the grants will not be made available um i've got some pretty good information here on um on what's happening in the senate the house yesterday voted for a bill that will raise the age of which it's um eligible or legal for you to own a semi-automatic r- uh, rifle from 18 to 21 i don't know how that affects a 19 year old soldier in afghanistan we'll see in the not too distant future so you can't buy a beer at 18 you can't own a semi-automatic w- weapon at 18 but you can go off to a foreign land and down behalf of your country in some of these political wars um, It's in, in, in support of imperialistic America. It's kind of interesting. But, but the House did yesterday vote to increase the age required to purchase a semi-automatic weapon from 18 to 21. Uh, 228 to 199, I think, was the vote. If I'm not mistaken, 10 Republicans voted in support of this federal legislation. Now go to the senate there's this bipartisan here we go with the bipartisan coalition the bipartisan coalition that has been negotiating uh what i'll call gun legislation uh proposals from um uh, uh, more extensive background checks um federal standards for red flag laws the federal standards for red flag laws will you know you'll get a grant i mean in other words you have comply if you comply with the federal government there'll be a financial uh, motivation to do so um, 
at the end of the day, guys, the red flag laws are going to ultimately allow, and I sound like a conservative radio show when I say this, but I mean it with every fiber of my being, the federal standards and the federal incentives to basically enforce some of these new red flag laws that are being discussed will eventually lead to the federal government having a right to confiscate your weapon. I mean, that's what we're talking about here. Um, and and I, to me, that's dangerous. I mean, that's the slippery slope. Do, do I believe addressing mental illness and, and you know, an extended waiting period? And uh, yeah, I mean, I'm for that. But at the end of the day, when I hear red flag laws and I hear federal funding tied to the red flag laws, um, trying to incentivize a state to agree, that just seems, that's too close to me. Because you know that's the goal well, of I mean, some the, the, the confiscation of firearms is, is soon to follow. I'm sorry. I mean, that's just, for, for, for call me a zealot, call me a right winger, call me whatever you choose to call me. Well, some but, have said that. But when I hear Democrats, as united as they are and motivated as they are, confiscating your firearm is what they're after. Take a break. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Breeze mentioned a January six uh, special. I guess a select committee. The House Select Committee includes um, seven Democrats, two Republicans that were appointed by Democrats. Um, <laughs> in other words, uh, we'll take the Republicans if they're as anti-Trump as we are. Um, but I said yesterday, and I'll say again: Matthew McConaughey's holding court in the White House press room. Joe Biden is on Jimmy Kimmel Live. Uh, and we're having an ABC News executive produce a select committee tonight on television. I don't think Fox has covered, but a lot of these others are. Um, the chairman of committee to defeat the president, former Colorado state senator, and somebody who's been with us uh, periodically before, uh, Republican Ted Harvey, is with us this morning. Um, sir, how are you? I'm wonderful. Good morning, gentlemen. So we are anticipating, uh, I don't know that my audience is very much, but there's a, a certain degree of anticipation in the political world for what we can expect to see tonight in primetime. A bit odd that a select committee would choose primetime to uh, reveal their findings. But here we are. Um, Senator, what do you make of this? Well, it's very well-organized, well-orchestrated political theater by the Democrats going into an election. They're desperate to find something to uh, rally the country to their uh, side coming into the November election. But I think it's going to prove to be falling flat when their whole agenda is to try to uh, prosecute President Trump for a third time and as a, for a third impeachment. And I think they're going to fall short of, of getting any uh, viewership for this political theater. But I also think they're going to fall short of being able to have any legal basis to say that Trump was responsible for the for the riots. Does it move the meter at all? And I think we have a unique situation in that in about 20 minutes we'll have with us in this studio a Trump-endorsed candidate running for a congressional seat in South Carolina against a Republican who voted to impeach Donald Trump, Tom Rice. So do you do you think this moves the meter? I mean, obviously, I don't think it moves Republicans. But does it move Republicans within the Republican Party to, to maybe support a little more the Liz Cheney's of the world, um, the the Republicans who have not been as supportive of President Trump? I, I think it moves the meter in the other direction. I think anybody like your congressman that uh, voted for the impeachment without any evidence, without any due process, is going to um, have to explain it. When the this, this January 6th committee is going to come forward with no evidence whatsoever, and um, they're going to have to be responsible for their votes. And I'm in Colorado, just 
across the, the border from Wyoming. And I can assure you, Liz Cheney's going to lose her election because of what she's doing with this January 6th hearing to try to divide our country, to try to bring down President Trump for nothing more than political retribution for way the, the way Trump and, and uh, his supporters went after um, the, the Bush-Cheney years and their failed policies when it came to Iraq and Afghanistan. I want to get your take on this. This is in the same vein, but a little bit different. Um, Britt Hume yesterday on Fox News implored uh, the political punditry, uh, talk radio, a part of that, to basically um, tone down the rhetoric, to de-escalate some of the conversation. Um, I'm of the opinion that if the Republicans decide to de-escalate and tone down the rhetoric, they'll get exactly what they deserve. Um, the liberal left has no intent to de-escalate, no interest in toning down the rhetoric. You say what to that? I agree 100 percent. I mean, you look at what happened during the Trump administration. You had the FBI and the CIA and the Justice Department doing everything they could to bring down the, the Trump administration in, in collusion with the, the Clinton campaign and the Obama previous administration. Um, if it wasn't for some some heroic Republicans on Capitol Hill that pushed back and fought back and Donald Trump um, being as aggressive as he was, um, they would have been successful in destroying the Trump administration more than they already were. And um, you look at the Black Lives Matters riots that suddenly have disappeared now that uh, Biden is in the White House. Um, the left is on a always, always on a full frontal attack to destroy America. And typically, the Republicans always fall back into the fetal position when they're called racist or anything like that. And I think Donald Trump taught the Republican Party and taught the American people that if you want to save your country, you're going to have to push back and you're going to have to fight for your values. And that's what the, re- the conservative MAGA movement is doing right now in America is they're pushing back against these radical leftists that want to destroy America. Well explained. Senator, thank you for your time. Have a great day, sir. Thank you. God bless. Have a great day. Thank you very much. There is a former Colorado State Senator Ted Harvey who is a uh, very actively involved in um, trying to get Republicans elected, uh, make America great again, Republicans, America first, Republicans. Uh, you know, I said it yesterday. It's a bit flippant to say it, but I mean, think of this, guys. Matthew McConaughey holds court in the White House press room the day before Joe Biden goes on Jimmy Kimmel Live, and we find out that Nancy Pelosi and Peter Schiff, or Adam Schiff, I'm sorry, have hired a NBC News producer to basically produce, um, with theatric effect, uh, Creative Liberties, I'm sure, will be in play here, um, a documentary, a really an infomercial. I mean, it'll be a Democratic, anti-Trump infomercial that you'll see tonight if you choose to watch it. I'm not going to watch it. I really don't want to cover it, but it's a bit newsworthy because we have a congressional race here in the 7th Congressional District that is hinged upon what? The quality and characteristics of the candidates? No an impeachment vote, and a Trump endorsement. Why did our congressman vote to impeach Donald Trump? Because he's had, uh, apparently saw compelling enough evidence to believe that Trump incited an insurrection, and out of that came a January 6th special or select committee, and out of that came a um, uh, somewhat of a process. I mean, it was a, um, it's it's always been a witch hunt. It started a witch hunt. It's ended a witch hunt. Um, you know how you know it's a witch hunt with the get-go? I mean, Pelosi says, you can put Republicans on this committee, only if there is anti-Trump as I am. 
So Adam Kinzinger and uh, Liz Cheney, uh, one of Illinois, one of Wyoming, are the representatives, and we know how anti-Trump they are, but the speaking circuit awaits. And, you know, they, they've got a, a last chance to make a name for themselves. Now, Liz Cheney's made enough money, um, or family's made enough money, and figured out a way to intervene in foreign affairs and uh, send 18, 19, 20-year-old young kids. wonder if they could carry a semi-automatic weapon or not um, out to the um, uh, some of the places that America may have an interest in or, or may not. But, but I do believe the January 6th committee hearing is a little bit interesting, and I think it backfires. I mean, I think Pelosi will overplay her hand because she's playing to the Democrat base. She's trying to convince them. Republicans are, are set in their ways. I mean, if you, if you like Trump and, and you want to support this America First movement, uh, there's nothing Nancy Pelosi is going to do to change your mind. There's nothing Liz Cheney is going to do to change your mind. I mean, to think about this, guys. If you're an America First Republican, or if you're a Republican in general, and you're trusting Nancy Pelosi, uh, Benny Thompson, and Liz Cheney to, to, per, to present and portray, you know, evidence is fact. I mean, nobody's going to buy that. Do you think there's anybody actually on the mid, in the middle on this no, issue? No, no. People have made their that, minds up. That could up. be swayed one sure. way or another. I mean, you know, and, and Rev, I'll say this. Spare me the righteousness and morality. Please. I mean, stop with that. Pelosi, Cheney, Kinzinger, um, Schiff, uh, Schumer. Spare me the righteousness and the morality argument. Guys, this is about power and influence. This is about maintaining the levers of the control of the levers of government. This is to make sure the MAGA movement, the America First movement, is diminished. It's, it's thwarted. It's not allowed to progress as many wish it would in America. It's really to teach you a lesson. There's a price you pay for trying to gain political power in America. Uh, if, if it's not, you know, some of these people believe it's their birthright. And their birthright is we get to control government. And if somebody comes along, here we go with the um, the analogy of moving the deck chairs around. If somebody comes along believing they have the right to move these deck chairs, those deck chairs are there for a reason. They're exactly where they're supposed to be. They're strategically located. We paid a lot of money for those deck chairs to be where they are. And the America First movement seems to be a legitimate, um, I don't know, a legitimate threat to those who have put the deck chairs where they are. So we're going to have a hearing. It's going to be a production. It's going to be a Democrat infomercial. Nobody will buy. I mean, the people that believe Trump incited an insurrection will always believe that Trump incited an insurrection. Those who don't will never believe, despite what Nancy Pelosi and Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney and Adam Schiff are trying to do. And um, we'll see whether it affects the outcome of the election here in the 7th Congressional District. I don't think it does. I don't think it has any effect. But don't don't fool yourself. I mean, most of you are smart enough. But but don't for a second believe this is about righteousness and morality and the salvation of democracy. I mean, this has nothing to do with saving democracy. It has nothing to do with the orderly transition of power. It has everything to do with power. These people are drunk with power. They will do whatever it takes to maintain and hold that power because they believe that they are though the credentialed uh, what do I call these people, the credentialed ma- managerial class and some of the elected of it, that they believe that is their birthright to control mining your government and how dare we believe that we deserve a seat at that table. And they're going to teach you a lesson. This is the price you pay when you do things like this. Speaking of price, I said yesterday in my Facebook post, um, would you swap a few mean tweets for $1.89 a gallon gas? <laughs> 
I think I would. <laughs> you darn yeah. right. How's that you never Trump? Thank you to the never Trump Republican. In fact, I dedicate this next $100 fill up to the never Trump Republican. Thank you. Indeed. Let's go to the phone. Here's Carl. Good morning, sir. Hey, good morning. Can you hear me okay, Ken? Yes, sir. All right. Um, I got some, some, some news for you. Now, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get off of the 7th District because I think we kind of got, got our stuff figured out. And I found out the other, yesterday, I guess, that there's a lot of people running in that gubernatorial primary on the Democrat side. And one of them is a young man in Darlington, and I know actually I know his brother very well. Um, I didn't even realize he was running because um, I mean I I I I have a house in Seventh District, but I work in Sixth District. Anyway, Sixth District listeners, okay? Because we're going to get off the seventh thing. Everybody's got that figured out. If you live in any of these counties, you are in completely in the Sixth District, okay? All of Williamsburg County, that's King Street, Greeleyville, Hemingway, all of that, all of you. Um, Lower Florence County, all right? That's Lake City, uh, Olana, um, uh, Coward, places like that. Um, all of Clarendon County, Manning, Alkaloo, Somerton, um, all of those places, you are all in 6th District. Um, then all of Colleton County, Walterboro, um, is the main place down there. Allendale and Bamberg, and then that's kind of out, and then Hampton and Jasper. All, all of those districts, all of those counties are completely in the 6th district. Then, of course, it, it salamanders out, and parts of Beaufort, well, the black parts of these counties, black parts of Beaufort, the black parts of Berkeley, mainly Everything, you know, around, like, St. Stephen, it leaves out Monk's Corner, Goose Creek, and on down. Calhoun County, most of Calhoun County is in 6th District. Um, a lot of Dorchester County leaves out Somerville, you know, the, the rural parts of Dorchester County. A big part of Orangeburg County. And then the black parts of Richmond County and Columbia, and then the black parts of Sumter. That's what, that's those, if you are in those listening areas, you need to check to see if you are in the, in the 6th District and vote in that Democrat primary because that's the only way we can get rid of, um, of, of Jim Clyburn. Now, that's not some trick. That is a, a, a political strategy that you need to go ahead and take advantage of because there's no other way to get him out. If he wins that primary, he's going to win that race. Now, I got a little more research on people running against him. I'm aware of the um, the one candidate from the low the, from the Charleston area, um, the Dixon guy. He's more of a reparations candidate. And then the other person running, his name is Addison. Um, he has red signs. He's running as a conservative Democrat, um, and, I, and I believe he ran against um, Brad Hutto um, for Hutto's seat in Orangeburg. So there you go. I mean, it's kind, of, it's kind of a chance of a lifetime. If we can get Clyburn out, it will just send the blow to the entire um, Democrat Party and the media. But then again, they are sending um, – Kamala Harris 
to the 6th District on Friday. Uh, so they got a one-two punch with this thing they're going to do tomorrow night, and then Kamala Harris coming here the next day. And don't, you know, don't rely on her unpopularity to get it done. Go and vote in that Democrat primary. Thank you, Carl. Appreciate that. Carl's kind of got it figured out in the 6th Congressional District. Yeah, yeah. he's got the strategy no, and laid it out well. No question about it. Take a break. Back in just a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. So everyone is a conservative champion now. I see these advertisements one after the other after the other. I hear them. Conservative champion. Conservative champion. Is there is there an exclusive club? Is there something you got to do to become a conservative champion? I mean, I think I'm a conservative. I don't know that I'm a conservative champion how, how do i get well, that that's marketing and messaging there you go there you go let's go to the phone vote getting or attempted vote getting sam in darlington hey sam hey morning guys hey sam um, what i wanted to talk about today i've been thinking about this gun control thing a good bit and and uh maybe today there's not a lot of passion about it because things move pretty quick but there's been a lot of passion on both sides about gun control and uh I thought of a way, actually, my wife suggested that I thought of a way to think about it. Uh, it is not quite so passionate and more logical. The, um, the, um, the Constitution of the United States is an amendable uh, document. You know, I mean, it's, it's not, it didn't come down off Mount Sinai written in stone. Uh, the Word of God is is not amendable so let's let's look at the word of god and see what light it might throw on the gun control issue um and one thing from the word of god i say is the value of human life uh the the sacredness of it we you know we need to we need to protect life uh and nurture it and so if if uh, gun control, and that's if, but if if a gun control measure will uh, will enhance the protection of human life, uh, then um, then that you know that is a mark, and we might uh, we should consider that and uh, consider it carefully. And another thing um, is that uh, that we are we we are. Um, in in this together, I mean, God God looks at us as as uh, you know we not just individually, but how we treat our neighbors and so forth. Uh, and so there again, um, if if uh, some gun control measure might uh, might help uh, protect our neighbors, not just ourselves, uh, then um, then that's something to be considered. Sam, I think we could – we got to take a break, hard break, top uh, of the hour. You didn't get a chance to conclude your thought, but uh, I, I want to get deeper into this as we progress. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937. Um, we have with us a special guest, Russell Fry, Republican candidate, 7th Congressional District. I'll get to him in about two seconds. we got a call. We'll get there in about two seconds. But I owe Sam at least somewhat of an explanation. Um, Sam and I would probably disagree more than we agree but I respect his heartfelt feelings, and I think his, his genuine and authentic emotions are come across over the airways. The ones, again, it doesn't mean that I agree with Sam. I certainly don't agree uh, with raising the age of assault, assault rifle weapon ownership from 18 to 21, but there are some things the Senate is talking about in this bipartisan debate 
um, extending waiting periods for people under 21. And, and they're arguing that would give time to conduct some of these background checks and some of the juvenile uh, criminal records. Some have been expunged. Some have been um, other, I don't know, they, they've been adjudicated in another sort of fashion. But, but these confidential juvenile records or juvenile records um, could reveal mental problems, could reveal criminal histories. So, so I'm not adamantly opposed to that. And I ain't on board yet. But I think, you know, we could have a conversation about extending some of the waiting period for juvenile ownership of a semi-automatic rifle uh, long enough to check their mental history or their criminal records their criminal history. Um, that there's a debate about helping states enforce some of these red flags, whether they could be called red flag laws, um, boost funding for mental health. I mean, I'm absolutely supportive of an increase in funding of mental health. Um, I'm, in, I'm, I'm in support of increasing funding for school security. Let's harden some of the soft targets. So um, I'm not running for office, but, but I host a radio show, and we talk to a lot of people who are running and do hold office. So um, I think conservative America uh, would be for uh, some sort of way to better establish red flag law, red flag law um, the, the checking up and the discerning of what's accurate and what's not. Uh, funding for mental health, I think we have failed the mentally ill. I mean, I think American government, I think American general have failed um, the mentally ill and we should dedicate more funding and do a better job result-oriented treatment of mental illness in America. Uh, we got a call. Let's get to the call and then we'll get to our guest, um, Russell Fry, House member and candidate for the 7th Congressional District, hotly contested 7th Congressional District. That includes a Trump endorsement and a Trump impeachment vote, the first in America. Let's go to the phone. Verd Odom, Marlboro County. Hey, Verd. Good morning, Ken, Dave, uh, Russell. Uh, and, of course, uh, my question for Russell is, uh, with all the uh, negative uh, ads that have gone out, I think I saw the same one yesterday, eight times in 45 minutes. Uh, you've ran a positive campaign through the whole thing. I think that resonates with the voters in the 7th District. And uh, in the 11th hour, I'm sure you're not going to go negative like uh, – your primary opponent is. And the last thing I will tell you is probably get ready for an ad coming out today where you're going to get blamed for the weather yesterday because the farmers in the 7th District didn't get enough rain. But anyway, Tuesday's a great day, I think, for the 7th District for South Carolina. I think the early voting has been a tremendous uh, help, and I think it's going to be a, a good day for the Russell Fly on Tuesday. Thank you, Vert. Appreciate that. Good morning, sir. How are you? Good morning. Good to be here. So let's um, we'll, we'll go to um, I mean, Vert is the consummate Republican. He's a foot soldier. He's uh, boots on the ground, getting the job done day after day after day. Um, let's start. We'll talk policy, and I want to get to some policy, and I want to get your opinion on some um, so some national issues and some local issues that are um uh, more precise to this congressional district. But this is a campaign. I mean, you're a candidate. Tom's a candidate. Uh, Dr. Barton's a candidate, Barbara Arthur. We got a lot of different candidates from a lot of different places. But I've argued, Russell, that this is a race about Donald Trump. This is an impeachment vote. This is a Trump endorsement. Um, as as much, I mean, that's not not insulting to the candidate. I'm certainly certainly not insulting you, nor Tom, nor Russell, or, or excuse me, um, Barbara, or anybody else. But but Trump is the central issue in this race. Do you agree with that or not? I 100% agree with that. I mean, Donald Trump is the de facto leader of the Republican Party. And when we look at where we were 
two years ago and where we are today. I mean, the dichotomy in leadership is incredibly evident. I mean, I said this at the Trump rally. This is what happens when you trade a general patent for a Gomer pile. And so you look at America first policies, things that put people to work, things that helped American working families. Um, and you look at where we are today with high gas prices and baby, fo- baby food shortages and everything else. And, and I, so I do think that this is about Donald Trump and the leadership that, that he brought to the table under his administration. Why do you think Trump endorsed Russell Fry? Well, I think, we, well, one, because we have a record uh, and probably the most predominant reason is because we have a record of accomplishing things at the state level that were America first. And we've particularly in the last two years since Biden has been in office, we've pushed back against Joe Biden on every which front that we possibly can as a state. Now, if you're a 10th Amendment conservative like I am, you think that states have a, a unique seat at the table. That they are they are qualified. They're labyrinths of democracy. And so we've pushed back. We've we've listened to our voters. You know, we've cut taxes. We have uh, passed the most pro-life piece of legislation in the state's history. We have passed the most pro-Second Amendment piece of legislation in the state's history. We've banned vaccine passports and mask mandates. And, you know, we've done a lot. Election integrity was a big one this year. So we've done a lot uh, internally. And we have a record of doing not only talking the talk, but walking the walk. You know, I served as chief majority whip for the House Republicans, which is a a fancy title for herding cats, but really driving that conservative policy and making sure that we were listening to our voters because those in Washington, D.C. are not. What do you say to those, Russell, who argue that Trump should have endorsed someone else? He got the wrong guy. He got an establishment Republican. He got someone who was not as in line with the America First agenda as some of the other candidates um, say they are. Well, I think that's a I think that's a, a a fallacy to some extent, and I'll tell you why. But, but it's out there, and you it, know it's out there. It's You're out candidate. There. You're aware of that. Yeah, but but if you look at every other race uh, that he's endorsed somebody, everyone's everyone's got that kind of a mentality that it should have been me, it should have not been the other guy. And so, in every single race around the country where he's come in and weighed in and endorsed a Republican in a Republican primary, you've seen that. Uh, but the difference is that you know we're consistently ranked. Um, I am as, as one of the most conservative legislators in this state. And you look at uh, groups like the South Carolina Club for Growth, Americans for Prosperity, the NRA, Palmetto Family. There was recently a uh, thing done by the uh, Republican Liberty Caucus. I mean, we have kind of stood in there. And so there, there's a record of, of working with people and delivering and getting policies done. And there's also a record of, of standing by your principles and, and doing your thing to make sure that you're advocating for the people who sent you, at least in this case, to Columbia. Congressman Rice has explained consistently and redundantly why he voted to impeach President Donald Trump. As, as what I would argue, if you, we believe the polls, some believe the polls, some don't believe in the polls, some believe the polls are skewed and juiced, some don't believe. I would argue, I believe a little of both. Um, having said that, he's offered an explanation to this district of why he did what he did. If you are the perceived chief uh, rival to Congressman Rice, what do you say about the vote he took? I think two things. One, um, you have to listen to your people. Your your district just sent you to Congress, just reelected you to Congress to be their voice. And you know that your people don't support that, that didn't support that. And even a day before the impeachment vote, he was on radio down in Myrtle Beach saying that he wasn't going to vote for it. And then somewhere between in that 24 hour span, he flipped. So he the, the outcry from from people, from voters was already there. Don't do this. And then he does it. 
And to me, you know, look, I went to law school. I'm, I'm proud of that. I mean, I, I grew up in a working class family. I am a lawyer. Um, you know, I worked for everything that I've got. My parents worked for everything that they've got, just like every one of your listeners. But at the end of the day, what I remember from law school and what I think Tom Rice missed is that due process matters, right? This is what sets us apart. Our faith, our Christian Christian background, our, our adherence to the rule of law. We, Congressman Rice, without due process, on a gut feeling, and voted to impeach the president. We have impeachment for a reason, that you set up hearings, that you go through the process, that you allow people to respond, to put up their own evidence or testimony, whatever the case is. I mean, we don't charge somebody with murder in this country and convict them the next day. We just don't do it. That's not who we are. There is a process in which you bring those charges, and then you have a trial. And impeachment, you know, this was the wrong vote from a due process standpoint, from an evidence standpoint, from things that we're continuing to learn every single day. Um, and, and, of course, you have to remember your voters, where you came from, what your voters expect you to do. And they didn't expect that, and they didn't want that. You're not in Washington. I'm not in Washington. I'll ask Congressman Ross this question on Monday. Um, why do you believe, as an aspiring congressman, that there are that many organized and powerful forces committed to his demise, President Trump's demise? I'm talking about national security agencies. I'm talking about the FBI, the CIA. Uh, we know now more than we knew then. We know how complicit some of these organized elements within our federal government were to basically um, the commitment they had to his demise. Why is that? Why, why is Trump? We well, understand the polarizing figure. I mean, you get it. I get it. He cuts both ways. You love him. You hate him. Sometimes within an hour of one another. But when you look at the responsibilities of people embedded in our government, why were they so committed to his failure and demise? Uh, I mean, gut gut feeling is that, that that he upset the apple cart. I mean, I mean, when he went in, it was a it was a it was whether you're looking at a Republican administration or a Democrat, some things kind of continue to flow the same way. And with the Trump administration, it was vastly different. We know that, um, and so I think it's unfortunate. I mean, we don't see this, uh, or we see this in in third world countries with dictatorships where government is being used to uh, as a weapon against political opponents and i think that's a, a thing that's a dangerous thing that we that, that we need to reject i mean government should be there to protect people to to do its job and to function regardless of who's in power and unfortunately we've seen that 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 weaponization of agencies against uh, a, a president so what happens to those agencies russell I mean, if an agency weaponizes itself against a president or a congressman or a senator and nothing happens, what's to stop them from doing it again? I mean, I read a lot because I host a four-hour radio show every morning. I mean, it's pretty evident that there was organization within. What should happen to those people who broke the law and, and were so passionately committed to this president's failure and demise? Well, I think you hold them accountable. I think you hold the How do we do that, Russell? Well, I think the, the funding, I think you've got to have significant oversight. And I think you have to have a Congress committed, regardless of party, that this is not something that we stand for in America. This is, this is not who we are. And regardless of who's in the White House or who's uh, in Congress, that, that government agencies are there to serve and not be used as weapons against uh, elected officials or the American people. Do we have a call? Let's go there. We, we got our first caller. Yep. Pat in Florence. Hi, Pat. You are on with Russell Fry. Good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing? Good morning, Pat. How are you? I'm good. Uh, I get flyers in the mail, of course, and uh, of course, with um, the rice, the biggest thing against him that everybody says is his vote to impeach Donald Trump, of course. Well, the the thorn in uh, Mr. Fry's um, 
for Mr. Mr. Fry is the missed votes in the in the non-voting record. How he missed all of those votes in Washington. So I just want to know if he could uh, explain explain that and um, what he had to say, sir. Thank you, sir. Thank you. I can check that off my list. There's something a caller asked that I had prepared to ask, and that's a fair, a very fair question. Has been a part of the campaign. Great question, and I'll, I'm going to start off by saying that I feel like that at least with us that right now we play whack-a-mole every single day with a new Tom Rice attack. Uh, we, we go and disprove it, and then he's on to the next one. The The missed votes thing is 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 completely, you know, a fabrication. I have a 98% attendance record in the state of South Carolina. I show up for work. I mean, I grew up in a blue-collar household. The year my son was born, I missed one day of legislative session and then was back the next day. There are votes, and every legislator does this because we're considered part-time. There are votes that you cannot take uh, in the legislature or that you should not take. And, and usually they're around a budget um, where you could have a conflict of interest. And so because we're part-time and because everyone has a business or operates or whatever, staff, ethics staff walks around and says, you might need to abstain from this. You might need to abstain from that because it could be, it either is or could be a conflict of interest. So we don't miss work. We abstain when we are are requested to do so and we look at that because i would never want to betray that trust and you look at legislators all across the gambit uh in the state house uh right now in the state senate and they abstain from voting there's no button for an abstention unfortunately so you just don't but every single budget year there is a statement in the journal by from me and every other legislator saying here are the sections of the budget that i'm abstaining from I'm going to ask you this last question before we take our first break, because I'm going to get into some of the infrastructure, some of the uh, trade issues that you'll deal with as a member of Congress. I asked a question on the debate stage, and uh, I think you and Congressman Ross were the only one that gave an answer. The others were a bit uh, avoiding uh, of what that is. But if if there is a runoff two weeks from this Tuesday that doesn't involve Russell Fry, who do you support? I support anybody but Tom Rice. I mean, I think, you know, I think impeachment showed – um, a, a sense about him that kind of an arrogance a little bit about who uh, he is that he that that he doesn't remember where he came from that he doesn't remember or respect the wishes of his voters and I think we've continued to see that whether it's the authorization of the January 6th committee whether it's the continued double down I mean just the other day he said that Liz Cheney would be an excellent speaker of the House of Representatives I don't know anybody uh, in this district less popular than Tom Rice than maybe a Liz Cheney and so to me, that, that, that just speaks that, you know, that there's a contempt of the voters uh, by Congressman Rice. And that's, you know, quite frankly, why we need to replace him. I mean, not everybody comes and not everyone that votes is from the Dunes Club, right? There are hardworking middle Americans that are out there fighting every day to put a roof over their head, to put food on their family's tables. And he has forgotten that. And I think we've seen that, that kind of uh, that, that he wishes his voters were a little bit different. Um, and that he's constantly challenging them. Who is the Trump voter? I think the Trump voter is a, a hardworking uh, American. I mean, people in this district all across the country. I mean, th- this district particularly is such a strong Trump district uh, because he fought for the working class, right? He fought for the working man. And I think that's kind of the way we've talked about this, Ken, on this show, uh, that this is the way uh, that the party is headed in a good way, that, that he stands up and fights. And so I think people expect the, the Trump voter uh, is is a is a hardworking family that 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 is trying their best to have government stay out of the way, so that they can put food on their table, that that things are good in the economy, that they can go to work every day, that they have an opportunity to succeed. 
that's a Trump voter. Okay, fair enough. We'll take a break. 843-661-0937 is our number. Uh, we'll take calls. Gradually be, be respectful and be, um, be efficient with the use of time. Take a break. Back in a minute. We love elections at Community Broadcasters, don't we, Rev? <laughs> Especially in the world of talk radio. Good it has been business. good for revenue. Very good. So thank you to all uh, the, the aspiring candidates for seeking public office yes. and believing that this radio station can play a small part in your getting elected. Yes. Uh, do we have a call? Thank you, Russell. Uh, thank yeah. you. Uh, and, and we'll thank Congressman Fry, uh, Rice um, come Monday. And then thanks to all the other candidates who signed up and uh, filed to run and are now advertising on this feeble attempt at Radio Brigance. Let's go to the phone. Pete, uh, you are on the line with Russell Fry. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, thank you very much. Um, I'm going to try to get this over with quick. Uh, I'm a first-time caller, and I listen to your show every, almost every day. Uh, Ken, Honorable Ken Ard and Russell Fry. And uh, what I want to say, by background, I am an African-American male, independent voter. I voted for Donald Trump. I also voted for um, uh, Barack. And but so I'm independent. And I read yesterday in the morning news that several uh, folks uh, wrote a comment section about uh, for the Democrats to vote for uh, um, the other candidate, <laughs> Tom, Tom Rice. And I wanted to get your, your take, Russell, uh, the Honorable Russell Fry and the Honorable Ken Ard, Ard on what do you think the impact of the Democrats on this vote coming up next week? Um, we've talked extensively about what we think is a, a fairly organized effort. I mean, I think it's a Hail Mary, but it's out there. Uh, Representative Fry, I'll ask you, what do you think of it? Well, look, I mean, I think, you know, primaries, you have to remember that primaries are elections, but they're not true elections. They are the selection of a nominee for November. So Democrats go and say, this is the best Democrat. Republicans go and say, this is the best Republican. These, this is our party's choice for the election. And I do think, unfortunately, that you've seen a lot of attempts. Uh, I've seen two uh, opinion articles in Florence. Uh, we've seen the Charleston Post and Courier. We've seen uh, the outright recruitment of Democrats to vote for a Republican in a Republican primary by the Rice campaign. You know, they're advertising on CNN. So there is a lot of outreach. Uh, I, I think that's a mistake. I think that we, the state actually, uh, would do well to, one, close primaries um, so that Republicans select Republicans. I mean, Republicans have no business voting in a Democratic primary. That's not our business. And, and I don't think that Democrats have any business voting in a Republican primary. The selection of a nominee is the party's choice, who, you know, however you identify. And of course, as a state, if you're an independent voter like the caller was, uh, in some states, they can go into either one. But, it, but, but what I think is that Democrats should not be selecting a Republican nominee. And the concern that I have right now, based on what we're seeing, is that 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 is an that is an outright attempt that uh, by the Rice campaign to recruit Democrats to come vote for him because of some uh, impeachment of or that they support impeachment or whatever the case is. Republicans should select the Republican nominee. Uh, independents, of course, uh, have a vehicle there too as well. But I, I think it is a a a a misnomer and a problem that I mean, if you are conservative, if you bill yourself as a conservative. You should be in a Republican primary. You should be trying to get those conservative votes and not not doing Democratic outreach. If you want to do that in a general election, I think you should. You're you're running to represent everybody. But right now in a primary, uh, that is the that is the problem. Let's talk about Myrtle Beach and the Grand Strand for a second. Um, having served in elected office, I've seen the gas tax numbers. I mean, I know how much the the Grand Strand contributes to our state's economy. Having said that. 
there, there's been a uh, an extensive and elongated debate about 73. You know, is 73 a reality? Is it coming to fruition? Will it ever be built? Um, there are candidates in this race who don't support the construction of I-73. All of us believe there has to be a way to enhance infrastructure to get people to one of our most valuable and prosperous assets, that being the Grand Strand. I think uh, Ken Richardson said yesterday, you know, the ocean's hard to goof up. Uh, it is hard to goof up. But But what is your recommendation as it relates to infrastructure and tourism along our Grand Strand? Well, listen, I, I think I think infrastructure is a core function of government. If you believe that as a conservative, I mean, that, that's something that is uniquely within the purview of what government should fund, right? Courts, police, fire, uh, infrastructure. These are things that government should be doing, right? So I think infrastructure is a big component of that. And I do think, I mean, I am a supporter of 73. And it's, and it's not just for tourism. It's, it's for... Uh, it's for hurricane evacuations. It's for economic development. Um, it, there's a lot of reasons to do that. And again, I think, it, and it's not the only, but it's not the only infrastructure that we should really focus on, right? There's a lot of other needs within the community. I think I-73 is a component of that. But I do think that it could that it could benefit the whole region, right? I mean, there's there's there are uh, jobs out there or businesses that say if you're not near a port and you're not near an interstate, we're not coming. And so if we if we want to better the seventh, if we want to better the whole region, you know, that interstate connectivity really helps. And, of course, you've got the great asset, the Dillon Inland Port, which was created um, by manufacturing. Uh, they, they said, we're going to put this here. And there was some state money. Um, you didn't see anything from the federal government, uh, but it really operates from a shipping perspective and really benefits the whole region. So, you know, you get that interstate connectivity. You got three interstates that run through the district. Um, with an I-73 in the future, I think it, it matters. And, and if you look at the way that in, interstates are funded, right, I mean, this is this is something that I think that, that gets lost in the shuffle. 526 in Charleston wasn't funded just by federal dollars. It was funded by half of the money was local money, um, and the other half was state and federal. And so 526 would not have happened. The, the extension of 526 in Charleston would not have happened but for that local components. So I think we all have to row together in some capacity to do that. And I think it's not the only infrastructure need in, in this district. I mean, we see that. I mean, I drive around the district. Y'all do too. Uh, so you have to focus on that too. But I think it is a an important piece that could help this whole region. Interesting question I got for you. And this is kind of, um, it's multifaceted. Uh, there are those in Horry County who believe we've got to slow down the growth. There are those of the PD that believe we've got to speed up the growth. As a member of Congress, it's not your job to solely be responsible for slowing down the growth or speeding up the growth. But if Congressman Fry's allowed to be in a room of decision makers, movers and shakers, we like to call them, um, what opinions do you have about slowing the growth of Horry County down and increasing the rate of growth in the PD? Well, look, I, I think, you know, you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater here, right? Growth provides a tremendous amount of jobs. You look at the the American family, the American workers that are in our district that are, you know, that are in construction and road construction and doing different trades. I mean, you don't want to, you want to harness that, but you want to be proactive about it. Make sure that infrastructure kind of keeps up. Uh, so Does Horry County have a growth problem? I, I think, well, look, I mean, we, we've we've had tremendous growth. I mean, our population has exploded. We've seen uh, we've seen that over the last decade, I and mean, we were one of the fastest-growing counties in the state. Um, and so there's a lot of opportunity. People are moving there for a lot of reasons. Uh, but the infrastructure catching up, I think, is the big thing. And that I hear from voters a lot is the infrastructure needs to catch up. 
But I think as as it as it turns, you know, when the PD succeeds, the Grand Strand succeeds because a lot of people from the PD uh, go to the beach for the weekend or uh, and 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 tour, you know go down there for maybe country music fest this weekend. So when the PD is successful, so is the Grand Strand. When the Grand Strand is successful, so can be the PD. So let's go specifically to the PD for a second. Um, what is the responsibility of a congressman in encouraging or 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 supporting or um, uh, helping facilitate growth in an area that has not experienced the sort of growth that has happened along the Grand Strand. I mean, you're a conservative Republican. Correct. We historically believe, you know, let the private sector do the private sector's thing, but we also accept that the practical realities of incentives and Department of Commerce grants and all these other, but but philosophically, what is your opinion as it relates to con- uh, congressional influence and, and, and promoting growth in an area that's not growing very fast? Well, look, you have to be a pro-vote pro-growth vote in the in the U.S. Congress. I think we've done that at the State House. You continue to do that from a policy perspective. But I think even more importantly, one of the frustrations that I have, and that's not just isolated here in, in this district, but really everywhere, is where is the where are the conversations, the behind-the-scene conversations with legislators, with, with city and county staff, with economic development folks? Where are those uh, uh, forums or meetings uh, that that people start to row together, right? That that we that, that we row the same direction. You know, when we sit up in Columbia, and we sit with, uh, you know, the Ori delegation sits with the Florence County delegation, and the PDs kind of all around us too. And we just do that traditionally because we work together. You have to work together. So when Philip Lowe or Jay Jordan says, "Hey, Florence, we need your help with something in Florence." Um, you know, we work together. And I think that that kind of camaraderie, that collegiality is really what will help. And those those conversations uh, and those connections are really what will help drive this area. So it, it's really incumbent on everybody. I mean, and a congressman can help be that right. The glue that helps hold it together or a little bit of the glue that helps hold it together. Because if if there's a successful venture, say, in, in Marlboro County, well, that benefits all of us. It doesn't mean that only Marlboro County residents are going to work in this economic development plant. Uh, people from Florence or Dillon or Chesterfield might do that, too. So from a regional perspective, I really think that that is something that a congressman can do. Uh, and it's not sexy. It's very behind the scenes, but it's it's something that should be done. And, sh- and those conversations should be happening. And quite frankly, they're not right now. Wait, let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Olivia in Florence. Hi, you are on with Russell Fry. Hi, thank you. My question is, what is your biggest accomplishment from Columbia, and how are you going to use your biggest accomplishment to help you in Congress? Thank you, Olivia. Appreciate that call. Russell? Oh, gosh, good question. Um, you know, this is uh, this is a little bit, I would say, personal, and, and we see this. Um, I am incredibly proud of the opioid uh, work that we've done in Columbia, and um, and, and we'll talk, this is a long answer, so I can talk about it for the whole segment, but I'll try to keep it short. You know, a couple of years ago, I saw a problem in, in Ori and really the whole state where we had overdose deaths that were climbing because of opioids. And so we really set out, you know, kind of uh, a couple of us is, is, a, is a small group trying to figure out ways to make that better, to, to eliminate that, to, to let people be, uh, to, to get them back on a road to recovery, to have uh, to prevent uh, opioid-related overdoses. And so what really came out of that was a, a committee, a study committee, and you know this, Ken. Study committees study a lot and don't actually do a lot in Correct. the end. But in this study committee, there was about 18 bills that came from that that were signed into law. 
there were significant increases in funding, both from a federal perspective. You know, the Trump administration doesn't get a lot of credit here, but they did a lot on the opioid epidemic. Uh, significant increases in state funding, and um, and but it really took a team to do that. I mean, we had a lot of people from around the state working together, and we really pushed that. And I think the frustrating thing that I see is that states and local governments in this state, and really in every state, um, have seen a tremendous rise in fentanyl-related overdoses. And we have a federal government that has done absolutely nothing to secure our border over the last two years. We have people pouring across our border. We have Chinese-manufactured fentanyl coming through Mexico. Every law enforcement agency from federal through the state recognizes that this is where it's coming from. But we have a federal government that is completely uh, asleep at the wheel, that they are not focused on that. And so for me, this is personal. When I look at families, and we all go to church with these people. We go to church. We see them in the grocery store. They are friends of ours, people who suffer from from addiction, and when the states and the local governments are trying their best to put their best foot forward, and you have a federal government that is not doing anything to help, and in fact is exacerbating it. But I am proud of that work because I think it took a very team approach, a collaborative approach. I chaired that committee, um, and and we got a lot done. And but there's still a lot to do, and a lot of that's on the federal level one by securing of, the border first. One of the issues that President Trump gets a lot of credit for is energy independence being aggressively in pursuit of energy independence. Um, this administration, eh, not so much. Um, would you or would you not support offshore drilling uh, in South Carolina? No, I don't support offshore drilling. I think uh, people on the coast, there's a lot of, there's a lot of concern um, about uh, oil spills. I mean, tourism drives our state's economy in a lot of ways, and I think that the, the risks um, outweigh the rewards. But uh, there is a lot of domestic production that could be happening, and we have leases that are being canceled in Wyoming and Alaska and everywhere else. We have, in every which way, the, the this administration has shut down uh, domestic production, and they're really putting lipstick on a pig when they pretend like they're actually doing something about it. I mean, they have pursued uh, this Green New Deal um, uh, to the detriment of the American people and the American worker, and we've seen the results of that, which is price over double what it cost two years ago. I mean, this is absolutely ridiculous. When I talk to people, I talked to a a lady the other day that I went to high school with, and she's a single mom, and she's like, I just got a new job. It's the best job I've ever had. I'm making more money than I've ever had, but it's not enough. I can't keep up. And I... And I, my heart goes out to people like that because these are people that, that I grew up with. These are these are that that blue collar working family, the single moms. You know, I think about that and I think about what our leaders are doing. And I mean, Joe Biden's recommendation is go buy an electric vehicle. Well, people can't afford an electric vehicle. They need cheap gas prices to be able to move from point A to point B. They want to go to work and they want their government to stop stop pursuing ridiculous and reckless policies that are hurting. So American energy independence can happen. It happened under Trump. Um, in, a, in a lot of ways, and we, we have to get back to that. Okay, let's take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Representative Russell Fry, candidate, Republican candidate, 7th Congressional District, voting to take place this coming Tuesday. 843-661-0937, someone is on the phone, congressman, excuse me, um, somebody wanting to be a congressman, actually a representative, Russell Fry's with us. He's a Republican candidate for the 7th Congressional District. We'll have a real-life congressman with us Monday as Tom Ross is in studio as we wrap up our one-hour visits with each and every candidate seeking your support. Let's go to the phone. Ashley in Poston's Corner, you're on with Russell Fry. Uh, good morning, fellas. Good to talk with y'all again. Um, I, I'm not a big proponent of I-73. I think... Uh, Tom Rice has done a good job of trying to beat that drum up for about 
10 years now. Uh, Mr. Fry, would you be interested in, in other locations, or other locations for an emergency exit for the beach in case of hurricane and things of that nature? Uh, you know, I live down in the lower part of Florence County, and it takes me about 50 minutes to get to the beach. But from Johnsonville to 31 is 16.45 miles, and it would cost about a fourth as far as emergency exits goes than I-73 would. And that's my question. Thank you, Ashley. Con uh, excuse me, Representative. Listen, there's also another project called the Southern Evacuation Lifeline, which is kind of more south end based, which I also support. It's not an interstate, but it's good. Uh, the problem, I think, when you look at in this, we're going to get in the weeds here, but we'll, let's do it. The problem with uh, road construction is it doesn't happen by looking at a map and saying, we're going to route this here, we're going to go build a new road. There's a permitting process. And what we've seen a lot of times is that environmental groups in Florence and Ori and really everywhere will hold up and, and fight every single uh, day um, against a road project. And we a couple of years ago, we had uh, a bill um, in or we had a problem in South Carolina where developers where uh, uh, road construction, you know, you go to build a new road and it would be held up. And for the price of a postage stamp, you could hold up a road a project. And so the permitting process is incredibly long and laborious and extensive, and it takes years to get. This road has been permitted. It's a 30-year permit. And so I'm open to all infrastructure because I think it matters. I think it's not it's not the only component to this to this region that is needed. Um, so however we can get people and move goods and services and widgets around and however we can recruit people into this area that, that raise the quality of life, I think we need to explore that. But I do think I-73 is a component of that. It has been permitted. Uh, and so, um, you know, there was, I think that some of the environmental groups out there were saying, well, you can make 501 an interstate. Well, that would cost probably five times as much money um, and and be next to impossible uh, to do. It would take decades. Um, and, and I think that the intent was to kind of distract from the actual permitted road, um, which has been permitted. So I'm for all infrastructure. Okay, two minutes. Why should people vote for mm -hmm. Russell Fry? This is your chance to make a plea, a last plea to our listening audience. Listen, I think we have a, a, a very big choice coming up on Tuesday, and I'd be honored, and I'm going to ask for your vote on that day. I think people want warriors in Congress and not wallflowers. I think they want people who stand up. You know, Congressman Rice is a self-described moderate. You know, he was censored by the Republican Party, voted to impeach uh, Donald Trump, and it says that Liz Cheney is a would make an excellent Speaker of the House. I think that he is not listening to his voters. If you want somebody to, that listens— then, then we are your candidate. And we've been a conservative advocate in the state house. I'm consistently ranked as one of the most conservative legislators in the seventh congressional district and in the state of South Carolina as a whole, because not only are we talking the talk, but we're walking the walk. You know, we've, we've led on critical race theory. We've led on saving women's sports and keeping trans out of women's sports. We've led on cutting your taxes, your income taxes just this year. We've had multiple votes on that, you know, in every which way we have done, uh, the the job and so I think people want people want somebody that they can feel accessible to that is going to do the job who's going to roll up the sleeves you know I don't get a, I don't sit in Columbia in my seat much I move around the floor very aggressively always advocating for uh, my community and that's what we're going to continue to do we have an opportunity I think in uh, on Tuesday to select an America first candidate to be your advocate. We are missing that. People are tired of wallflowers. They do not want do-nothing congressmen anymore. They want people who are actually going to get the job done, say what they mean, mean what they say, and be your advocate. So I would be honored to have 
your your vote and be your advocate as an America First congressman on June 14th. Okay, thank you, sir. Good luck, and we'll see you down the road. Take a break. Back in a minute. You guys have heard me talk about my father extensively. My father died in 2004, but he was not just my dad. He was my boss. He was my mentor. We had a family business. And and when things were good, you like this, when, when things were good, my dad would say, I can't get out of the way of money. I mean, he would just, he would say that. Now, when things were bad, he would, you know, he'd cut, cut, cut and do this and do that and do something else. But I, in the best of times, my dad, because he was a character, I mean, he was a genuine character and I miss him and I miss people like him. I mean, I, I seriously believe in American politics, we're going to regret that we basically um, sterilized and and made so, I don't know, prim and proper the process. The people that got elected 30 or 40 years ago couldn't stand the vetting today. There, there is no way. Um, I'm convinced of that. Mm-hmm. But my dad in good times would say, son, I can't get out of the way of money. I just, we can't even get out of the way. Of well, I'm thinking about that. Um, I can't get out of the way of a politician right now. I mean, everywhere we look, we've got a politician wanting to get on the radio or wanting to, you know, to try to solicit support. It's that time. But it's democracy. It's, a, it's the American democracy in action. It's representative uh, republicanism uh, that, that we are uh, experiencing as we sit today. And it's a lot of fun. I remember the days of running for office. I remember the anxiety, the excitement, the frustration, uh, the gamut of emotions from one end of the spectrum to the other. And I'm always I, interested to hear that when you get to this point a few days out from the primary. I mean, what do you, what's the well, feeling? I, mean, I, I always, I just trusted the polls. I mean, I, you know, maybe I'm stupid enough to believe that they know what they're doing. Uh, and I think Trump has disrupted some of the traditional polling models, but I just, you know, I, I've never been, I mean, I, I've, I've run for election. Or I've had my name on the ballot eight times. I'm fortunate to have never lost. I don't think it's because I was the most exemplary candidate. I'm certainly not, but, but I do believe Rev, I had some quality about me that understood the, the electorate. Uh, I lived with those people. I related to those people. I knew who they were and what they believed in and what they stood for. And I didn't think tank myself uh, to an election. I didn't, you know, consult myself into an election. Uh, Robert Cahaley was my consultant and Robert and I would argue about things because the, you know, um, the traditions of Republican politics say this. And, uh, and, and really and truly, we were a little bit ahead of the game because uh, I've told you before, when I ran in 2010 for lieutenant governor, I sensed the populism. I sensed the frustration. I sensed the, um, I don't know, Rev, the, the America first before it was uh, called America first. But these folks are out on the campaign trail. They're working as hard as they know how to work. And here's the um, here's what the frustration is. Uh, my wife would say, did you have a good day? I don't know. I don't have any idea. We spoke to thousands of people. I don't have any idea how many liked me or how many didn't. In business, we were in manufacturing. If you manufactured X number of widgets and sold X number of widgets, you knew. There was a defined, it was not abstract. It was not inexact. And, and the art of politics is very abstract and exact. Um, and these folks running for office are running as hard as they know how to run, but they honestly don't know what sort of success or failure they're going to deal with Tuesday. I believe the most important election in South Carolina. Now, the most interesting to us is the the impeachment vote and the Trump endorsement. No question about it. Uh, when you when you kind of um, get down to brass tacks, that is what we are very intrigued by and about. But the superintendent of education um, is something that I always pay very close attention to because I think education needs radical reform. And I'm always looking at the candidate that I believe will most radically reform education in South Carolina. Um, We spoke with Ellen Weaver a while back when we were down at the Grand Strand uh, with the, I think the Republican Party was having some sort of event. She was there, joined us over the air, not as a candidate, 
for superintendent of education, but she's with us this morning as a um, a candidate waiting on an election this coming Tuesday. Ellen, good morning. How are you? Hey, I'm great, Ken. How are you? I, I just had to smile at your description of the agony and the ecstasy of the last few days of a campaign. You nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> Been there, done that, I, and, and, I, and I sympathize with you, but it is an exciting time to have your name on a ballot and, and basically solicit support from all over the state of South Carolina. Before we get to your specific agenda or platform, um, tell us a little bit about who Ellen Weaver is. Yeah, well, thank you for asking, and and I can't agree more with what you said. I believe this is the most important statewide race on this primary ballot. If we don't get a hold of our education system, we've lost the country, and and that's that's what's at stake here. So I'm offering myself for service because um, I'm from Greenville originally. I live in Columbia now. I worked for about 12 years for um, conservative stalwart Jim DeMint, and his his model of public service is the model I carry with me, which means you say what you mean and you mean what you say. And, um, <clears throat> you know, he served with, with integrity, with uh, conservative vigor, and that's the kind of um, passion that I want to bring with me into my service in education. I run an organization in Columbia now that does a lot of work in K-12 education policy, and it's really become a passion of mine. I've had a front row seat through my service on the Education Oversight Committee to just the absolute dysfunction of our current system. It is not working well for students. It's not working well for parents, and it's certainly not working well for our teachers. Um, and so, I want to get in there and offer myself and my experience, my background, um, on behalf of the people of this state. I spoke a second ago about my father in business. The one thing that we dealt with daily in our lives was competition. The one thing that I think is woefully lacking in education all over America, not just South Carolina, is competition. What would a superintendent of education, Ellen Weaver, do to introduce competition to improve the outcome of education? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because I am the one candidate who has been an unapologetic supporter for my entire career of money follows the child's school choice. I believe that competition works across the board, and it's not just a theory. States like Florida have had robust school choice programs for the last 20 years. And you know what the result has been, Ken? Exactly what we thought it would be. Students are doing better. And not just the students who are in a choice program, but students who are in the traditional public school. A rising tide lifts all boats. And, you know, I've been real honored to be able to work very closely with Senator Tim Scott on these education choice issues. This is a real passion of his. And he says it best. He says, when parents have a choice, kids have a better chance and that's just the bottom line many many forces in education will fight against that there's a self-preservation there's a business as usual mindset in education how do you address that how do you change um, the mindset of those who are accustomed to educating our young kids a certain way Well, I can tell you, I have the battle scars uh, from being a choice supporter. So you're absolutely right about that. But I think it's just informing people about how things actually work. Um, You know, really, choice is not just about being uh, effective for, for students and for parents, although that's that's true. It also creates a market for teacher talent. I hear how frustrated our teachers are by the way that they're treated in a one-size-fits-all system. Imagine a system where teachers had a choice of what kind of education environment they 
work best in. Um, so, you know, I think it's really just about good information. We know that the national unions are never going to let go of their tired old talking points about how education choice is going to harm public education. And you know why that is? Because they have power and money at stake. That's the bottom line here. They are more about the adults than they are about the students. And so we're going to hear those same tired talking points trotted out again and again and again. But, you know, as we start to see success in choice, and we are here in South Carolina, our charter school um, community has grown exponentially over COVID because many of those charter schools reopened when traditional classrooms were closed. Um, we are on the cusp of passing our first uh, private school choice scholarship here in South Carolina that is truly money follows the child. I have fought for that for six years. And it's a small program. It's just a tiny bite, but it's a first step. And I think once people get that little taste of success of what's possible, we can continue to push forward, again, like Florida's done, like Tennessee is doing, like Arizona has done. I mean, there's so many states across the country that are doing this, especially here in the southeast. And if we don't get in the game, South Carolina is going to lose economic development opportunity and jobs. We've got to fix our education system, and choice has to be a big part of that. Last question. Appreciate your time. Ellen Weaver, Republican candidate, superintendent of education. Uh, we've seen enormous growth in certain areas and pockets in South Carolina. Russell Fry was with us a second ago. Congressman Tom Rouse will be with us Monday. Horry County is the fastest growing uh, county in South Carolina. Greenville has experienced enormous growth. The Lexington area, uh, the Rock Hill area, along the coast. But there are a lot of counties in South Carolina that have experienced a decline in population, a decline in opportunity, a decline in, in, in socioeconomic standing. Um, what can a superintendent of education do to allow the kids in some of these d d d depressed and less prosperous conditions, making sure they receive a quality education? Uh, the, the rural versus urban divide, I guess, the, the, the high growth versus no growth or low growth areas. H how... What is your opinion to that, and how would you like to see that addressed? Ken, I'm glad you asked that, because that's a real passion of mine. We have got to make sure that every child has access to the highest quality opportunity. I think a lot of times about, you know, our hometown hero here in South Carolina, Ron McNair, who was one of the first African-American astronauts um, from, from over there in the PD area, not too far from you down the road. Um, and, and I think all the time, is there a Ron McNair sitting in a classroom in rural South Carolina who doesn't have access to the science classes he needs to be the next great scientist or the, the art classes he needs to be the next great artist? And so I think ensuring that all of our kids, wherever they live, have equal opportunity is critical. I think education choice is a big part of that. There are new ideas in education, micro schools, learning pods that can work in small communities and rural communities that we can support if we rethink how we do education. Um, we can offer shared services to a lot of these districts to ensure that they have the highest quality technical support. Technology is a huge part of education. We've got to make sure that our students have access to broadband. We're making progress on that, incredible progress on that as a state. So, I mean, there's a lot that we have to do to ensure that our students in rural communities have equal opportunity, but I know that it's possible and we just have to rethink our mindset <laughs> if, if we're going to, you know, get outside the box and, and really serve them in the way that they deserve to be served. Okay, Ellen, you're a candidate. The election is Tuesday. I'll get out of the way, give you a minute or so to kind of um, make one last plea to our listeners and your potential voters. 
Thank you so much. Well, I'm honored to ask for your listeners' votes, but I'm not just asking for their votes. I'm asking for their volunteerism after I'm elected, because it is going to take all of us to turn this education system around. We didn't get here overnight, and we're not going to fix it overnight. But working together, we can make a difference for our parents, for our students, and for our teachers. Um, It's going to require strong leadership, because like you were talking about before, Ken, there is a very entrenched status quo in education education that is comfortable with how things are and doesn't like things to change. I have the backbone and the ability to stand up to that kind of pressure and to build the team that it's going to take to get something done. I think this primary is probably going to end up coming down to a runoff because there's so many of us in the field. And I think it's going to be me and a candidate who is a creature of that status quo. Um, who does not understand the fundamental need that we have to have a fresh perspective, to do things differently, to stand up for our parents and our teachers and our kids in a way that we just haven't done here in South Carolina. So I'm encouraged by the response that we're getting all across this state, and I'm honored and humbled to be able to offer myself for this critical and critically important position for South Carolina's future. Well, we wish you well. Thank you for your time, and, um, and have a great day. Thank you, Ellen. Thanks, Ken. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Ellen Weaver, Superintendent of Education candidate in the Republican primary. I know what you're about to ask me. So so who's the establishment candidate in the Republican primary? Um, I don't have any idea. Uh, of course I do. It's Kathy Manning. Uh, she would be the establishment, uh, the, the more traditional pick there. Um, I, I don't know much about these candidates. I know Ellen a little bit from having spent some time in Columbia when DeMint was a senator and she was working for Senator DeMint. Um, very committed to school choice. I don't know that we've ever had a candidate running for superintendent of education in South Carolina as committed, uh, on the record, committed to school choice. That kind of excites me. Now, once again, I don't know much about the other candidates. We spent all of our time, you know, defending Trump and trying to get the 7th Congressional <laughs> District figured out. But like you said, this is very important. Oh, it's, it's, it's extremely important. important. In it is, it is extra- I can't express to you how extremely. I mean, the, in all honesty, the governor gets to live in the mansion. And he gets to give the state of the state address. Uh, the governor is at the mercy of the legislator, uh, the legislators, the legislature. Um, that's just the way it works in South Carolina. Uh, the legislative branch has a lot of governance authority in our state. But does the education secretary have authority and, as, as you call it, yank? Enough I, yank I would to get argue stuff done? that when it comes to running uh, one of the state's most important agencies, that being the you know the education system. Yeah, I mean, I think the. The superintendent of education is a more important vote than the governor's. Edu- I mean, the oh. governor's, no question about it, because the, the, once again, the, the governor is, I mean, he's the figurehead, he's the standard bearer, he's the leader of the political party in, in said state, but being able to execute policy and drive an agenda in a particular direction, I think the superintendent of education on day one can can really kind of grab the steering wheel and, and, and begin to steer the education system in South Carolina, uh, the direction of their choosing. And Ellen excites me a bit because um, she has been such a staunch supporter of school choice. And I believe, I'm not saying school choice is the end all to be or to be all end all, but school choice introduces competition. And I think public education intentionally and woefully lacks um, competitive forces. Let's go to the phone. Jim and Florence. Hey, Jim. Hey, good morning, guys. Uh, so 
the next uh, Ron McNair isn't sitting in a poor performing classroom. Ken, uh, he was aborted by Planned Parenthood, and they're sell- selling off his body parts. Um, and, uh, you know, we why don't you conference. be a bit provocative this morning, Jim? <laughs> right, right. I, 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 don't worry, I got more to say. Hey, so <laughs> uh, in the meantime, though, uh, I, I looked up the fellow Carl was talking about this morning, who's running for governor as a Democrat. I, Ken, you got to get that guy on your program. Uh, he looks interesting. I think uh, I, I think he demonstrates perspective uh, that we need to listen to and hear from, um, and he may be one of the last Democrats we can find common ground with. And and we really the, the Democrats we can find common ground with Ken um, are the ones we need to bring to the table as far as America First goes, um, whether it be the Tulsi Gabbards of the world um, or this fella. Um, we need to bring those guys and gals into our fold as far as America first goes, um, to grow our movement, so to speak. Um, but, but to go back to the, uh, hyperbolic stuff, Ken, uh, I get really irritated when people attempt to use our religion, um, as an excuse to take our rights away from us. Um, especially when those rights are God given and the, the founders codified them in the constitution. Um, because those rights exist, whether the Constitution exists or not. But um, first, let's call gun grabbers what they really are. They are racist elitists who don't think poor working class Americans should have access to affordable methods of defense, um, especially black women who are currently living in war zones um, because of uh, BAs like the one that just got uh, uh, recalled out in California. Um, you know, also, to a point to the, the thousand percent tax that uh, what a Virginia legislator uh, proposed on putting on guns, so you would take a a five hundred dollar gun and make it a five thousand dollar gun. Um, that, that's effectively disarming the poor. Um, can guns have liberated more people, more Christians, um, and it guns save lives, and they place the weak on the same level is the powerful um self-defense is certainly a natural right and i i'll disagree with you here ken the second amendment is certainly absolute and if it wasn't absolute the founders would have put a workaround in the amendment like they did in the second third and fifth amendment so um let's call these gun grabbers what they are does the constitution afford you the right to amend the second amendment it does, so do it. Okay, I mean, there, there you go. But I mean, if it's if it's two plus two equals four, you can amend that and change it. The, the yeah, Constitution you affords you the I'm, opportunity to amend the Second Amendment. Therefore, it's not absolute. Well, then, then you're saying the whole Constitution is not absolute. But until you amend it, it's absolute. Well, I mean, okay. I mean, it, it is. We, we'll agree that we're splitting hairs. I mean, I'm trying to be disagreeable because I like being <laughs> disagreeable as you but do. Point, but my point being. Congress can't enact a law that goes against the Second Amendment. That's where I'm saying it's okay. absolute. So. But you're not opposed to the potential amending. I mean, obviously, you would vote no for amending the Second Amendment, but you accept that that is a constitutional reality and, and important to our founders. I, I would propose we make the Second Amendment stronger okay. <laughs> and clear it up where the the, the racist, elitist gun grabbers want, uh, try to interpret it. Um, and I would make some other things stronger. Um, my only concern about a constitutional convention of some sort um, is it goes opposite the way we want it to go. 
Very well explained. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate the call. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. Hey, if Matthew McConaughey can hold court of the White House press room, President Biden appear on Jimmy Kimmel Live, why can't we have a select committee hearing in prime time? That's what we're doing uh, tonight. Showbiz, man. man well, it. I mean, it's entertaining. I think an ABC News Apparently. executive has been hired to produce the select committee. Um, great television senior national editor, White House correspondent John Decker is with us from Los Angeles, if I'm not mistaken. John, good morning. How are you? Hey, good morning. Yeah, I'm out in Los Angeles with President Biden. Uh, he is here for the Summit of the Americas. Uh, so uh, I have been here for the last uh, two days. Uh, I'll head back tomorrow. President Biden uh, heads back on Saturday. Uh, but as you mentioned, uh, a lot going on, including that January 6th televised hearing tonight. So uh, I need I, while I'm here in Los Angeles, I'll be following what's happening back in Washington as well, just like you. John, why primetime? I mean, it's in primetime. I've just never, I follow politics for a good while. I've never heard of a, uh, a scheduled select committee hearing uh, in primetime. I mean, obviously there are political implications here. Nobody's naive to any of that. But is this that unusual? It's unusual. Doesn't happen that often. I think back to, for instance, you may recall Clarence Thomas and his confirmation hearings going all the way back several decades. That was prime time, uh, if you if you may recall. Uh, and, you know, going back uh, to the Watergate hearings, that, too, uh, drew the attention of the entire country. And I think that's the, the, the reason why you're talking about a prime time hearing. It gets sort of lost in the mix if it happens, you know, during daytime hours and people are working. Uh, this gives an opportunity for the committee uh, to present what they want to present during the course of this first prime time hearing. And there may be others uh, beyond the one that we see tonight. Do you think there is any moving of the meter? In other words, um, the Democrats hope to paint a picture a certain way. The Republicans would play defense another way. Um, There's a story to be told and a narrative to be adhered to. But do you think it moves the meter politically in one direction or another? Well, it's such a broad question, Ken. And let me answer it this way, because it is a broad question. Does it move the meter in terms of changing the trajectory in terms of what I think is going to happen in the midterm elections, you know, whether or not Democrats can hold on to the House and Senate. No, it doesn't. But I do think it moves the meter in this sense. I I think that for independent voters in particular, uh, they're going to learn some more information uh, this evening that perhaps they do not know already. And I think it makes it's more problematic for former President Trump more than anybody else. I'm looking ahead all the way to 2024. I'm not looking to 2022 and the midterms. I'm looking to 2024. I think it's problematic for him, you know, if indeed he decides to embark on uh, a run for president once again. John, is it unusual? Okay, the uh, the prime time has precedent. Last question. Is it unusual that a political party would not let the minority party um, nominate members of the committee? That is unusual, but that is not what happened exactly in this particular case. There was an opportunity for uh, Republicans to name individuals to this committee. And what happened in this particular case is that Kevin McCarthy named individuals who themselves uh, would be a focus of the attention of the committee. And so those uh, two names in particular were rejected by the House Speaker, Nancy Pelosi, and that's when Republicans said, you know what, we're not going to be a part of this process at all. And that's when Nancy Pelosi said, OK, uh, we're going to name two Republicans to the committee. I will do so. And, of course, we know what happened there. Adam Kinzinger, 
Republican from Illinois, a member of the committee. Liz Cheney, Republican from Wyoming, also a, a member of the committee. She's the ranking member. So there are two Republicans on the committee, but that's the background in terms of how we got to the makeup of the committee, you know, going back over a year ago. Yeah, I just think it's it's fair to say that every member of the committee was picked by Nancy Pelosi. Uh, uh, it, that is true. That okay. is absolutely true. Every but, member was picked by Nancy Pelosi after uh, Republicans had an opportunity to replace the members that she rejected with other members. And that's when Kevin McCarthy said, you know what, we're not going to play along with this at all. Good deal. Thank you, John. Safe travels. We'll talk next week. Thank you. Have a great day. Great weekend. We'll talk next week for sure. Thanks a lot, Cam. Bye-bye. Yes, sir. Great television senior national editor, White House correspondent John Decker. Getting a bit frustrated with the radio show host. Uh, I detected a, a little bit of that. I just wanted to set the record straight from his perspective, well, I, mean, but, I guess. But, didn't I mean, he, he's a journalist, and, and I understand this. But, I mean, <laughs> let, let's be honest and sincere. Right. The committee uh, consists of eight members, every one of which was nominated and put on the committee by Nancy Pelosi. I mean, we've got to understand that, guys, as we watch or don't watch. I mean, that's up to you. Watch it or don't watch it. I have no um, I have no bearing in what decision you choose to make. But but let's be honest with ourselves. Every member of the committee that, that, that has investigated whatever they choose to investigate in relation to the events of January 6th were, were nominated and placed on the committee or allowed to be on the committee by Nancy Pelosi. And Pelosi found the two most anti-Trump Republicans she could in Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, and they agreed to serve on the Pelosi-Schiff committee. It's and they're not, well-known anti-Trumpers. Sure they are. They're, they're, they're the most anti-Trump uh, Republicans there is. Um, Kinzinger is not running for re-election. Uh, Liz Cheney, we hope, gets her, um, I don't want to say brains beat out. That's a lousy way to say it. Uh, we hope she meets her uh, political demise in Wyoming uh, with Republican primary voters. So we'll see how this plays out. But, I, I mean, it's, it's just completely inaccurate and fair to say it's a bipartisan committee. It's not a bipartisan committee. It's never been a bipartisan committee. And save me the righteousness and morality argument. I mean, I looked on Facebook yesterday, and there's some of these Twitter, I think. Twitter is where I looked. But there's some of the... Um, uh, this is about dignity and and saving democracy <laughs> and and Jefferson would be proud and uh, Washington would be proud and uh, Trump is such an egregious and insulting personality. Okay, maybe he is. Uh, at times he is very egregious and insulting. But this is not about honor or nobility. This is not about righteousness. This is about a witch hunt. This is eight senators. Excuse me, eight House members who believe that Donald Trump is the Antichrist. And the best way to stop him from ever entering the political forum again or the political arena again is to just continue to um, make sure whatever he was associated with uh, and in, in future endeavors, uh, John even said that, you know, this is a lot about the 2024 presidential election. Here's the oddity of that. I was thinking about this yesterday. If you believe you're beating fair and square, why would you want to beat him again? I mean, when you really think about it, I mean, he's already proven to be beatable, right? I mean, the Democrats beat Trump in 2020. I mean, they swear by that. We beat him fair and square. Nothing to see here. If you believe you're beating fair and square, then why not let him be and run again in 2024? Unless you don't believe you beat him fair and square. Mm-hmm. 843-661-0937 <laughs> is the number. Let's go to the phone. Here is Lisa in Aiken. Hi, Lisa. Good morning, guys. Yeah, I called in about the school superintendent deal, and but after that last phone call, wow, um, lost a few more brain cells. But um, 
anyway, uh, I think everybody should know the history of Manus. Um, she basically has a liberal voting history with the Biden spending and uh, no on school choice, parents' choice. So I think, in, in my opinion, there's an R in front of her name because she knew if there wasn't, she wasn't going to get elected. Um, and I'm just going to hang up and listen. Thank you. Well, I, I concur. I mean, I would be real careful there. Let me say it as politely and diplomatically as I can. If you believe that public education in South Carolina is broken and underserving the young people who go to school every day and the families of the young, of the young people, if you believe the funding of public education is underutilized and inefficiently spent, then then don't vote for someone who's going to go along and get along. Vote for someone who's willing to try and reform to change. And, and I do believe, I stick by my comments, I think the superintendent of education uh, in this election cycle is the most important vote you will cast next Tuesday. I stand by that comment with with all respect to the governor. And I consider Henry a friend, and I like Henry. But, but the governor's not going to do but so much because we live in a very legislatively dominated state. We've reformed some of the executive powers. We've still not gotten them to a place where I think is appropriate, but I'm not king of the world nor master of the universe. But the superintendent of education can, can honestly direct change working with the General Assembly and the governor for that matter. And we need to fundamentally reshape, reimagine public education in South Carolina and I think Ellen Weaver is the kind of candidate that will do it. I'm not going to say uh, go vote for Ellen Weaver because I don't know much about these other candidates. But um, the likely runoff will be one who will keep on keeping on and one who will probably try to some degree and, and, and fundamentally change the formula we use in how we educate kids in South Carolina. Let's go to the phone. Davis in Sumter listening to WDXY. Hi, Davis. Good morning. Uh, after listening to Matthew McConaughey's uh, speech, I guess you'd call it, uh, I went back and looked up movies that he had been in and parts that he had played. Uh, excuse me, parts that he had played, and just a few here, uh, based on what he wants us to believe about guns. Free State of Jones was the movie. He led a militia of fellow deserters in an uprising against the government. Killer Joe. McConaughey is hired to kill a, a man's mother. Mud plays a man wanted for murder. And my favorite, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Next Generation. I always turn to actors in Hollywood for my political reasoning. And <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I detect a high level of sarcasm in Davis's comments. I like Matthew McConaughey. I find Matthew McConaughey to be very interesting, interesting guy. very provocative, and smart. He's wrong here. I mean, I, you know, I understand wanting to do something. I think anytime kids are slaughtered, murdered in cold blood in a school, we all want to do something. But but let's do something that changes or that saves lives. Let's do something that, that affects change. Let's just don't do something because a movie star says let's do something. I mean, we really can try to, guys, think of this. And I put on Twitter yesterday, we live in a nation now that we are to be taken seriously. Or we, we say, you know, we're, we're serious people. We're a superpower, the preeminent superpower on the planet today. Never before has humanity lived the, the quality of life that we live in America today. Not everybody, but by and large, in the aggregate, on average. 
Americans live better. Today, in America, you live better than anybody ever has in human history. But Matthew McConaughey held court in the White House press briefing and probably did a better job of holding court than the press secretary. Oh, I mean, you got no to admit, the guy kind of commanded the room. He's I mean, an he, actor. Well, sure. He I mean, he's got a certain that. persona about him, and he's gotten a certain confidence. I mean, he, he looked like he belonged when he did this. Um, and he also arrived to the White House with armed security around him, I'm sure. And he gets paid to be somebody he's not. I mean, remember what acting is. Uh, the role of an actor is to play or pretend they're somebody they really aren't. Why would you believe that he turns that off when he needs to get your uh, your compassion or your, your, your prey upon your emotions or your feelings? Though, I mean, that's what they do for a living, and he's really good at it. And once again, I've watched multiple YouTube videos of Matthew McConaughey. I've always found him to be thoughtful and interesting and provocative. But I think he's dead wrong on guns. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Amber in Florence. Hi, Amber. You are on the air. Oh, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Okay, so I have to say that I respect Matthew McConaughey as an actor, and his book Green Lights was um, motivational, but I am not willing to give up my um, rights. <laughs> Just to agree with him, okay? But anyway, the reason I called in was because um, I just want to say that Brian Chapman for Super State... Um, Superintendent of Education? Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know any of the other people. I know Brian. Um, he's a good man. And that's all I can say. Okay. Thank you very <laughs> much. Yeah. He, he, I, he agrees with... Uh, Got good fundamental rights, and uh, I agree with him. So good deal. That's all I can say. Thank you, Amber. Appreciate you calling. That's right. We have someone in our county on, on our local school board here running for superintendent of education. Um, I I don't know much about that. I mean, I, you know, I've not heard a platform. I've not heard any specifics, and I've not seen you know, any advertising. And I think Weaver reached out to us. Am I right, um, Mike? I mean, the, the Weaver campaign reached out. Look, we're going to let you all on. Whoever the candidates are, reach out to the station and we'll get you on some way somehow if we can if humanly possible uh, by tuesday that's kind of what we're in the business of doing trying to connect politicians with voters when there are elections to be had you know matthew mcconaughey's position on gun control is not extreme i mean i disagree with it but it's not extreme i mean it centers around red flag laws and some of the juvenile um database is a little bit slow in regu- uh, registering some of the information. I mean, it's once again, I don't need a movie star lecturing to me about the Second Amendment. I mean, I'm with you, Amber. I'm with you, Jim. But but his gun control position is not extreme. It's not radical. It is an insult to the Second Amendment. If you believe the Second Amendment is absolute and shall not be infringed upon, means shall not be infringed upon. Um, and I understand that most Republicans are going to disagree with it. The point I'm trying to make is, it's not extreme. It's not one of these abolishment of the Second Amendment that, that most Democrats want to do. And that's why I find McConaughey to be very, very interesting and intriguing. And, and we live in an era, guys. We live in an era where communicating is one of the central features of politics in America today. We look at politicians today, uh, what? A little bit like celebrities. Well, I mean, if we're looking at politicians like celebrities, wouldn't it stand to reason that the best celebrities would be those who get paid to be something they're not. 
I mean, in all honesty, I mean, think about it. I mean, if you let me ask you a question, Rev. If you lived in Texas and you had a chance to vote for Matthew McConaughey or a Mitch McConnell, who would you vote for? <laughs> I mean, McConnell's a safe bet, but 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 sure. the electorate the electorate I'm, right now are not interested. I'm sick of in the, there. McConnell, you go, that, McConnell's you, type. You better believe it. You're 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 probably more inclined because you think McConnell may be left of center, but you don't think he's a radical. You don't think he's a nut. You don't think he's an, he's an extreme um, guy, and I don't either. I mean, I, I do think he's a bit left of center um, on a lot of issues that I disagree with, but it would be a lot of fun. And as someone who hosts, <laughs> uh, hosts a talk radio show, you know, a Matthew McConaughey in politics having positions all over the place is very conversational and very interesting and a bit refreshing, let's admit, a bit refreshing. Let's go to the phone. David in the PD. Hello, David. Hey, good morning. Uh, can you hear me there? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Hey, Ken, uh, you, you brought up a great point this morning. Uh, you were talking about the public sector income. And I always call it the D.C. Uh, government worker double dipper. And that's the people that's got the full pension. Uh, and now they become, they're our age. They're like 58 years old. They're our age. And not only do they have the full pension, uh, they are contractors now. And they don't have to pay for gas, but here's what I want to get into this prime time hearing. you got Jonathan Carl. He's been talking about this all day long. And who is he? He's a George Stephanopoulos understudy. Who is George Stephanopoulos? He's a Bill Clinton understudy. So you, you're back into the, the Democrats. And then this is all about an undercover documentary film that they're going to bring on. They're going to bring on the Proud Boys. They're going to bring on the old Oath Keepers or whatever it is. So they're going to narrow down 74 million Trump voters. They're going to try to morph you. Think about this. They're going to try to morph you down into a bunch of belligerent, bitter, bullying white people. So that's all this is all about. That's their mindset. And they always talk about how you can't. Uh, stereotype people, how you can't put a, a definition on people. And and one thing I was thinking about, um, Russell, Tom Rice, he's going to be part of Larry Hogan's Heroes. David, so we got to take Chris a break. Well, hey, David, we got to take a break. Back in just a minute. 